I'm Chris McDonough, a retired homicide detective. I've interviewed thousands of people, from serial killers to ministers. Welcome to the interview room. Welcome to the interview room, everybody. We're so grateful that you're here on this wonderful Sunday evening. We want to welcome each and every one of you and also let you know that all things discussed here tonight, all parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. We thank you all for our subscribers, to our new Patreon members, Carolyn, Katie Berg, Rebecca, Dana, and D. Ross, thank you for joining the TIR family. Wow, what a panel we've got with for us tonight. As you know, the best minds in the business, if you ask me. If you're new to this panel, i.e. TIR family, I want to introduce who we have. In the upper left-hand corner, Dr. Ann Burgess. We're honored to have Ann with us again, the highly acclaimed Netflix series, Mindhunter, based on the fictional character of Dr. Wendy Carr, was directly off the very real Ann Burgess. Ann, Ann is a Boston College professor of nursing in the late 70s, and she was a pioneer in assessing the treatment of trauma victims. She and FBI Special Investigator John Douglas developed a new type of criminal profiling of notorious serial killers. She and John collaborated for decades, and John Douglas wrote about their work in the renowned book Mindhunter, inside the FBI's elite serial crime unit. His book was the basis for the fictional Netflix series of Mindhunter. Of Mindhunter. John was also one of the writers there. The TV series ran from 2017 to 2019 and got rave reviews. We're thrilled and excited to have, again, the original Mindhunter on our show, Dr. Ann Burgess. Welcome, man. Also tonight, man, Ann and Gary nailed it. They nailed it. Renowned Dr. Gary Broccato. Gary is a clinical psychologist and a researcher, author in the, area of, in the area of psychotic illness and violence. He has over 20 years of clinical experience. He was additionally trained in a private forensic practice, learning to conduct evaluations for civil and criminal courts. Dr. Bracato is a visiting scholar at Boston College, where he collaborates with Dr. Ann Burgess and Dr. Patrika below here, who I'm going to get to next, okay, on a grant-funded project 
analyzing murders involving asphyxiation by strangulation and other means. Dr. Bricado is a full-time private practitioner in New York, and he also co-wrote the book, The New Evil, Understanding the Emergence of Modern Violent Crime. And guys, if you guys did not see that last uh, presentation, uh, you'll know why these uh, this panel is the best out there. He's extremely, uh, his extreme accurate prediction of the type of personality of the killer involved in this particular case with Dr. Burgess and Greg Cooper, who can't make it tonight for, due to a family commitment. And I think we will all know that was spot on. Dr. Bricotta, welcome again, Gary, to the show. We appreciate you being here. Okay, and we have another special guest, uh, one of uh, colleagues uh, of both Dr. Bricado and Anne, Dr. Victor Patricka. He is an assistant professor at the Boston College William Connell School of Nursing. He's a board-certified advanced practice, uh, advanced practice psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. He has extensive experience in psychiatry involving and including forensics and personality disorders correctional healthcare, uh, psychopharmaceuticals, and risk assessments. There is a link to Dr. Bricotteca's bio also below. And if you're just joining with us, and Victor, welcome to the show this evening. We are so excited to have you here uh, along with the rest of the panel. This is going to be a great show. Okay. Well, man, I don't know where to start tonight, but what I want to do is, uh, you know, first of all, everybody, if, um, you know, we, we had a little, uh, just so the audience knows, uh, guys and gals, we had a little technical things going on. So we've all agreed we're just kind of kind of mute and then unmute uh, as we come in and out. So um, I want to kick us off tonight with kind of the ground uh, lay the ground rules in terms of what can hear me. <laughs> you know, it's not your internet, it's mine, so don't worry. Um, all right, so here's what we know so far. The University of Idaho students were killed inside their bedrooms on November 13th, 2022. They are Kylie. Uh, Kaylee Goncalves, Maggie Mogan, Zanna Cardoonal, and Ethan Chapin. Kaylee, Madison, Zanna, and Ethan. And forgive me for messing up their last names. I'm so sorry. Um, I've, I was born with a lisp, and I've had a lisp, and sometimes it doesn't work correctly. So forgive me of that. Uh, so the police have arrested... Uh, Brian Christopher Colbert on December 30th at his parents' home in Pennsylvania. They recovered a white Hyundai Elantra, Elantra from his home, and police have been looking for that Elantra for weeks uh, following the murders. At this point, he is in custody and is alleged to be the killer of the four students above. Again, a reminder, he's innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, and our opinions do not count towards that jury. Uh, we are on a YouTube channel and a podcast presenting our, uh, the doctors are presenting their academic 
uh, credentials and study of these types of individuals, and they and they in no way reflect Mr. Kohlberger. Um, Cole Kohlberger was a PhD student, PhD student in criminology at Washington State University, located about eight miles from the University of Idaho. After the murders, he returned to his studies, and when his classmates talked about the murders, it's reported that he sat in the classroom stone-faced and quiet during those discussions. I could only see him in front of one of your lectures and, uh, you know, just to be thinking, holy cow, he's here. He is being held in jail in Pennsylvania, currently on a no bail, uh, and he will appear this Tuesday in court for an extradition hearing back to Idaho. Moscow police say at this point they will release the probable cause of affidavit and outlines the evidence connecting him to the crimes uh, once he has been uh, extradited back to Idaho. And when he returns, that legal process will start to take place. But until then, everybody has to wait until the extradition, because in Idaho, it is the law. They cannot discuss the details of that probable cause affidavit. So here's what we know about Brian Christopher Kober. And may I say BCK. And may I give a thousand percent credit to Dr. Bricado for sending me an email that says, have you seen his initials? And I went, holy cow, you know, holy cow. And that is another podcast in another day down the road, but he gets to coin BCK, I get to steal it and share it with everybody because he gave me permission. <laughs> that said, who is this guy? Born in 1994, friends knew him in high school uh, and said when he was in the 11th grade, he was overweight, and, and but he presented himself uh, quite you know pleasantly sometimes. Depends on who you talk to in high school. By grade 12, he reportedly was using drugs it is completely unconfirmed at this point, other than some initial interviews in the public arena from some of his former classmates. Uh, and he started to lose weight. And because of that, a lot of his friends started to drop away from his influence and his social networks. Because at that point, they described a personality change in relationship to bullying and just somewhat becoming mean. His high, his high school friends described him as shy, keeping to himself in small groups. He was getting mocked, and he would mock girls. And girls would also throw things at him. There was definitely something off about him, one friend said. He was socially awkward, another said. Awkward and intelligent, extremely intelligent, says another. He lived a sheltered life, and after high school, he talked with one of his friends for hours about his struggle, addictions, and his weight problems that he was struggling with. College friends and acquaintances have described and said he wanted to be seen as an intellectual. He explained things in a way to make sure you knew that he knew it, one person said i.e., he was always right. However, he was always looking to fit in. That 
was also described as part of his personality. After high school, we don't know much about what he was doing. Uh, and excuse me, after uh, his initial high school appearance, um, graduation, we don't know much about what he was doing until he started to interact with his social networks again in college, which I just described above. 2018 at 23, he received an Associates of Arts in psychology from a community college in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, November uh, 2018 to August 21, age 24. He worked part-time as a casual security guard for the Pleasant Valley School District in Monroe County, Pennsylvania. In 2020, at age 25, he received a bachelor's degree uh, from DeSales University. In May of 22, at 27, he graduated from DeSales University in Allentown, Allentown, Pennsylvania, with a master's of, of arts in criminal justice. Allentown, Allentown is about 40 miles south of uh, Albrightsville. August 22, he started his PhD program in criminology and criminal justice at Washington State University. He lived on the campus in Pullman, and that was about eight miles from 1122 King Road or the scene of the crime. August 22, he received an infraction by the police department for failing to wear a seatbelt while driving, which includes the area of Moscow, and this was in Lata County. Okay, that's kind of a high-level run-through. So I want to start off, first of all, with Dr. Burgess. Um, and you were right on. You, your analysis, and, and folks, if you have not seen uh, Dr. Bricado, Dr. Burgess' uh, analysis of this particular individual pre-arrest, uh, we broke them up into segments. Please go back and watch those, or you can watch the full presentation of the panel. Uh, so, Anne, I want to ask you, uh, just have you start off our discussion here this evening. Is um, Were you surprised with uh, anything that you're learning about him up to this point? Well, first of all, when, when I first heard it, I was relieved and happy that they had finally you know, made a suspect. As to what was coming out, I was also relieved that much of what we had said was from our, our work, our studies. So I felt um, positive about that and, and going to be anxious to see as more information comes out, how, how on target we were with that. But this was, uh, this was in our study, this type of um, profiling is, is something that Actually, the FBI had started way back in the 70s and 80s. So the, the technique I was familiar with, and uh, you're always hoping that you're right. So in, in that respect, I'm glad that uh, for the things that we said. Awesome. And so, uh, Dr. Procrado, I'm going to go over to you next. And then, uh, Victor, you'll be after that. So you co-authored, co Gary, the, the Mass Murder Database uh, for Columbia University, which is one of, it is the largest database of mass murders in the world. Mm -hmm. That's yes, that's true. Okay. That said, what are you learning uh, about him after your 
spot on analysis of this personality. Tell me what your thoughts are. Well, first of all, you know, just to kind of echo a point you made earlier, I think it's extremely important to keep repeating um, that the person who's been arrested is merely a suspect uh, so that, you know, our profile is something I would definitely still stand by. And I think that everyone would agree that there are remarkable similarities between the profile and the suspect, um, but that it is essential that it that it be, you know, that we that we we, we repeat that. Um, I also think that because the Idaho police rightfully are holding things so close to the vest, we also don't know what's going to come out. There may be pieces of information that that suggest we were wrong about certain aspects of the profile or that there are pieces of the motivation we're unaware of right now is still a great deal of speculation about the specific motive. Now, what I would say is, is that um, the profile that we sketched was of an individual who had um, characteristics that looked an awful lot like the portion of people in the mass murder database who one would predict to authentically be troubled in some way. Uh, whether it was that they had odd ideas or peculiar obsessions or psychosis or were somewhere on the spectrum or some kind of oddness. So that one of the characteristics that kept getting put out there over and over again was that this would be something of an odd duck, that this would be a person that would have these little run-ins with people where they would say, this guy is not reading people correctly. He's odd. He doesn't successfully negotiate relationships. And we were able to tell that from the use of a knife. Uh, when guns are used, that is much less likely, right? People tend to be to have very different personality structure than that. And we talked about how there was a subset of people in the database who had more psychopathic features. And those people looked a lot more like the traditional serial killers that we see. What's interesting about this profile, as we had said, is that this looks like one of these people that kind of has a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, that you would expect to see the kind of awkwardness, the oddness, the peculiar fixations, the, the ruminativeness, et cetera, the regimented lifestyle, but also that cold-blooded reptilian quality where, where a person could harbor a grudge for a long time and not impulsively act, but kind of act in the cold light of reason. And when you have that mixture, um, you really wind up with quite a dangerous character. Uh, now, in this particular individual, if he were to prove to be, you know, the, the person who committed these offenses, I think it would be clear that this is somebody who had a very troubled life, who had peculiarities, who was considered by other people to be very odd. For example, there was one press report that a relative said that he had a uh, such a fixation on veganism that he would not reuse, he would not allow anyone to cook anything in a pot that had ever been touched by meat. That was considered very odd, even by relatives of the individual. That kind of regimented, peculiar lifestyle is precisely the kind of thing we were talking about. And then, of course, we have the history of having been picked on, ridiculed, very unsuccessful with regard to women, relationships, friendships. And then on top of that, we talked about how this kind of character, who isn't necessarily sexually motivated, might be very interested in the kind of intellectual stimulation and experimentation uh, 
that comes from studying people meticulously, studying crime, studying feelings when people are wounded or hurt. And this is precisely what emerged in the suspect, is that he was somebody who was literally studying what people feel when they commit an offense and possibly even interested in what people feel when they're being hurt. Uh, but but again, I want to keep emphasizing we don't know that this is the person. We only know that there's quite a match between that profile and the individual who was who was taken into custody. You're, mu You're muted, Chris. <laughs> yep. See, there you go. Yeah. What's what's new? <laughs> Uh, so let's go over to uh, Dr. Pacheco for a moment, shall we? And now, Victor, I know you have been doing some uh, behind-the-scenes research uh, with your colleagues here, and you actually discover or found the actual questionnaires and everything for his for for Brian's research. And you don't have the answers, but you have the questions. And what it, what I think was will be very interesting for our audience is the panel to discuss, you know, the depth of potentially what those questions could infer, right? Sure. So yeah. do you want to share that? You want to share that with me? And I'll put it up on the screen of what you have. All right. So I'll go ahead and share my screen, and hopefully that allows you to show it. Okay. All right. Can you see it? Uh, yes. Okay. There you go. All right. So I quickly acted once I saw the first post, right? That I think a lot of people are familiar with now that indicated that he had been doing some research in May of this year and that happened to have a link to Qualtrics. Just very quickly, Qualtrics is a tool that we use for survey uh, methodology in research. And that seemed to be what he was using through the, the sales university at that time. Uh, I was fortunate to be able to get to all the questions before it got pulled out because I was sure that they wouldn't keep it there. But uh, I think it's helpful for us to look over just very quickly about some of the areas that he was covering in this research, that is assuming that the profile was indeed uh, his. I, I'm gonna call him BCK too, just for the sake of uh, coining the term or emphasizing the term first, which was very expertly coined. So as you can see, he was reaching out to different uh, people who had been arrested and committed any crimes and trying to get information from them. This is in itself is pretty innocuous. It's something that we do in forensic research and criminology research. And we try to find out, right? What is this person age? What is this person uh, gender identity? We want to know their racial ethnic background. Those are pretty standard questions that we will basically be seeking in any type of research. So at this point, I don't think there's very much mystery here, um, but, of course, one of the areas that he was interested in was what was the type of crime that someone committed and also details about what that crime um, represented, what type of offense that represented. And interestingly, 
he was focusing on thoughts, beliefs, perceptions that the person would have reported. So he wanted to know if the person was employed, if they had any issues with their family, any type of predisposing factors. Uh, and that was followed by just general questions in which the individuals were asked, did you have anything um, before you left? After committing the crime, what were you thinking and feeling? And why did you choose or target a specific victim? So this to me shows someone who was very curious on the thought process of someone who's committing a crime. And again, this is something that a lot of people who study forensics and criminology happen to be interested. I'm interested in those things in my own research. That being said, I am interested in to learn how other people feel. And it makes you wonder if this person who at this point is a suspect, to emphasize that one more time, is there potentially a sense of comparison on how other, others feel to how they uh, hypothetically would feel? And that is already tying in with the comment that Gary was making. If you have someone who maybe has some awkwardness or is a bit of an odd duck and maybe not the best social cue reader, it's not uncommon for that person to be doing checks with others, trying to compare how they feel. Because if they are a little bit odd or they sense that there's something different about them, it's not unusual to try to seek um, confirmation elsewhere. And an interesting part of this survey was the, the inquiry about unique traits that someone might have had, such as feeling nervous or anxious, trouble relaxing, being so restless that it's hard to sit still. So here, there's a little bit of a screening on a person's potential underlying personality um, archetype or even potential psychopathology. And that follows through with assessments for depression. Uh, these questions, if you are familiar with uh, the DSM or psychiatry, they are pretty standard screening questions for depression. And this, to me, is a little bit unusual. Um, I usually wouldn't be screening for depression to this depth in research that is particularly focusing on crime and the thought process involving crime. So this stands out a bit. Um, and along with that, we had questions that were looking into different scenarios that were posed to the potential participants, asking how much they related to the scenarios. And here you can see that some of these questions are assessing if this person has a sense of remorse or some sort of conscience, right? Like if you see question number four, you lie to people, but they never find out about it. What is the likelihood that you would feel terrible about the lie that you told? So this is once again, potentially this check on how do I feel? Does it correspond to how other people feel? Or if you're just, of course, a, a standard researcher, you're just trying to find out, right? These people who have committed certain crimes, are they uh, people who in these hypothetical scenarios show any sort of um, disregard for others or of a lack of empathy perhaps? Um, and then there were some general uh, questions that were pertaining to how people react, like I'm quick to temper, I'm good at resisting temptation, I'm lazy, basically questions that are pointing out to how someone sees their own personality, how they see themselves um, in relation to others. So this, <laughs> I can save this uh, picture for later because that shows a safety smock. <laughs> so okay, I think that... I'm Yes, go ahead. One thing that I wanted to point out for 
that I haven't seen being discussed very often, but to me, what is unusual, yes, there are aspects of their survey that do stand out as a bit maybe not really related to this type of research usually, but the part that is most odd to me is the timing because he released the survey in May, he graduated in June. For anybody who does research, it takes a long time to collect data. So usually when I put a survey out, it will take me months, sometimes six months, just to get responses back. And then I will analyze the data. Then I write up the data. That whole process can take a year, sometimes even more. So to me, I don't see, it would be hard to see a connection between that particular survey and graduation because it's just impossible to get it done in the timeline, you know? So the question mark is, was that survey really for the requirements for the degree or was that done at his own leisure using the uh, particular uh, tool from the university to just reach out to a population that you're interested in. It has a pretty convincing um, badge on it, right? That will encourage people to participate because it seems official, uh, but it wasn't truly associated with the degree in itself. That is a fascinating point uh, that you that you raised there, uh, Dave, uh, Victor. So let's go and and talk about then some of the psychological aspects in relationship to the, the type of questions being presented. And if it's late in the game, as you know, Victor has, you know, pointed out, uh, what's behind that? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Dr. Burgess, Dr. Bricado, and I'm going to go ahead and mute out and let you guys chat about that for a moment. Oh, that's a very good point is what is it what what Victor raises is is this something obviously it wasn't for his uh, passing his um, de sales masters that it couldn't have been done in one month and to collect data so obviously it has another meaning and what is that meaning is that something for his and this is even before he is as far as we know admitted for as a PhD um, student. So it falls more, in my opinion, maybe a, a Gary or, or Victor can comment on this, that this is something for him. This is something that he is comparing other people to him, unless he thinks he can save this data and write it up at a, a separate point. I was also, and I'll just add this, I was really interested in the little examples that he gave that like if you spilled red wine on a rug and put a chair over it and, you know, but the little examples he gives, I don't think I've ever seen them in a psychological test. So if there are ones that he made up, that would be very telling too. So I'll, I'll let uh, our psychologist major <laughs> guru here speak on that. Go ahead, Gary. Can I just add a quick point, a technical point about the research that just so everybody know, you cannot, we cannot just collect data willy-nilly. There's a very rigorous process in which the ethics board has to review all the instruments that we do. So I saw a comment in the chat that maybe he was preparing for his PhD dissertation. You can't do that. And there's no faculty supervisor in a PhD program that would be like, oh, great, you brought all this data that you collected. Who knows if it was ethically or not? And let's just use it. So the if that, is, that portal was used, uh, for his own uh, needs, what motivations, whatever those are, you it would be very hard to argue that there was a legitimate academic uh, purpose for it. 
and that data sits in the server at uh, the university, correct? If it, right. if, if it exists. Everything in the case that was used, uh, it was released through the Qualtrics that they sales. So those are paid for programs that have the cloud, the NNI love to collect our data to the cloud. And um, yeah, there is, of course, layers of protection, right, to the data, but someone ought to be able to access it. Awesome. Um, uh, go ahead. Uh, tell them where the... Um, uh, the IRB it, it has on the instructions that it did pass the IRB, and for the sales, it would be very very interesting to see if they could get the data. I mean, uh, Chris raises a very good point of where's the data if it if it's anonymous uh, and they don't take it down. I don't know how um, you're able to. Maybe you know more about that, Victor. Of how how would they be able to get the data? Oh, the the website. Uh, put that that it was on the XCon. You found that out too. Yeah. So the so the entry point has been taken out, right? Because for those who are familiar with Reddit as the social platform, that's where he was reaching out to his potential uh, participants, and that in itself it's fine. I don't think there's anything particularly concerning about that. That's a methodology that has been done elsewhere. Um, and that will be only the point of data entry, but the data will be stored somewhere, right? And that will live within the servers of the university. Wonderful. Uh, Dr. Bricado, what say you? Well, to Victor's point, I think that there are some people who, because they're so poor at reading other human beings and cues, they wind up in a state of being frustrated that the feelings and reactions of other people are not predictable. And they try to reduce people to a kind of science. And um, people like that, they sort of remind me of people many thousands of years ago who developed certain practices to try to make things predictable, like what kind of dance do I need to do to prevent, you know, the rain from killing the crops, you know, that kind of thing. You you make a, a kind of, a, 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 you have an independent variable and you kind of manipulate it and you say, does this make you like me? Does that make you like me? And I think if this suspect is in fact the person involved, it sounds like one example of something he tried to do was to see what would happen if he lost weight, if that would make him more acceptable or he tried to see would I be more acceptable if I was, let's say, more aggressive with people instead of so passive? Or what if I developed these kind of obsessional practices to kind of uh, manipulate the environment and keep it from being out of control? So that eventually what happens is when you strip it all away, what you're left with is the anger that nothing you do seems adequate to make people see you the way you want to be seen, which is that you've a feeling of power and control and attractiveness and authority. And so what I think you see here, if this is this individual, is somebody who's trying to flip the narrative and say, see what I really am? You know, I underneath all of this, I've got you all under control. I mean, for example, let's say this is the person involved and on the the morning of the murder, um, he enters from an upper floor or has to pass through a small window or if he doesn't go through the sliding door. Imagine a person who had once been overweight, now feeling that he could scurry up like a squirrel, you know, jump down with great dexterity, squeeze himself through a, a little window. Or so. You imagine a person who feels 
I'm not that anymore. Now I'm powerful. Now in the dark, I'm whatever I want to be. And so that you, it seems to be all about somebody who's trying to manipulate a narrative and create a, a, a project into the world a way that they want to be seen. And that's why I was very interested in whether this is somebody who would stalk victims. And there certainly does seem to be some suggestion that that went on here. I just saw a news report before coming on that um, it's believed that this that that the suspect might have even been uh, tracking the phones of the victims, which shows technical skill, you know, that godlike feeling of kind of being in charge. But I think it really comes down to this problem of reading people a problem of projecting what you want. And, then, and once upon a time, that kind of person might have been somebody who was moving in a different direction that might have made, you know, uh, done a pro-social thing in the world with the, that skill set, but who along the way just kept getting bopped on the head in these sort of sad attempts to connect to women and other human beings. Um, but we don't know uh, if this is the person involved. But if it is, the narrative would suggest that somebody who was who was looking for those ways and i think this ties in beautifully with what it is victor is saying that you can think of this survey if this is the person involved in the crime then you can look at this survey as as um really a, a huge attempt at controlling his own dark side or understanding his own motivations which of course is part of the problem too is not being aware of your own internal experience and therefore how other people feel and um, I mean, I would be interested to hear if, what Anne and Victor think about that. But that does seem to be the essence of this, the assertion of ego and control over the other people as a compensation for years of feeling powerless and invisible. Uh, and um, what, what do you think, Anne and Victor? Um, I would just add that this this makes me think that this is even longer incoming in, in his planning and so forth from what you described, that this is almost assumed his whole life since high school, almost, that this has been going on. Um, I was struck with your thought that he maybe scaled up and came in through a little window or something. Remember Ted Bundy? lost so much weight in prison that he could get escape and he'd get through those bars on the window. So maybe he had, you know, thoughts like that. We, we don't know what he read or what he studied, but he, he well could have seen some of these things. Um, but I certainly agree with the manipulation and the need to control is, is, is just overwhelming with this uh, suspect. I'm sorry. And I would just, I would just add that, if this suspect is guilty, what you have is an individual who, on the one hand, was vegan and horrified by the idea of killing an animal, I would imagine, but capable of mutilating human beings. Yeah, help so us understand you, you almost that. Imagine, right. It's an odd, help, help it's us an understand odd that Right. Yeah. I mean, if this is the guilty party, it, what, it, what it suggests is a person who you know, it's the classic thing of the thing that horrifies you the most that you most try to control is the thing you're most drawn to, right? It's the person who protests too much and is disgusted at the at those human at those impulses, and yet is engaging in them, right? So that that the other question is, you know, is killing 
sometimes for some offenders, a way of overcoming their own meekness, the, the sense that they hate themselves for being weak. And the idea is, is that if I do this, then not only am I in control, but I've given vent to the parts of myself that I see as more masculine or more in control or whatever kind of phantom or godlike. Uh, and um, what's interesting is that in this offender, there's a progression from being kind of more of a, a docile, kind of quiet, kinder person to somebody who, after the use of drugs uh, and um, and a lot of weight loss, became kind of arrogant and obnoxious and off-putting and misogynistic, condescending, uh, and um, was titillated by kind of sadistically irritating other people and getting under their skin. And um, so that you see this real dramatic change in personality that seems to come later. And it raises the question, is one side a compensation for the other side? Is that a compensation for all the feelings of weakness and docileness? Or, you know, or, or is this the truth emerging from behind the curtain? It's all unclear, but but if this individual turns out to be guilty, I'm sure all these pieces are going to fall into place. But it gets right to this point about fragmentation and splitting and those those different parts of the self being compartmentalized that we talked about last time. Uh, so that, that there'll be a lot of people who say, well, this was an odd person, but I'm kind of surprised that he was able to do that, that kind of thing, right? Where yeah, you, 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 don't, you can't out. quite connect it in your head. Yeah. Uh, Victor, as somebody who uh, who also has expertise in personality uh, structure, I mean, what, what do you think about this? Yeah, and I agree with what you're saying. I think that just start by being, putting the caveat there, because I'm sure it will come up at some point. Is this someone who is mentally ill? Not only in the traditional sense of the, world, the word, if we are considering the type of crime and this particular profile, we are really looking at the personality pathology, right? And as Gary suggested, the mix of a cluster A, which is the odd personality disorder, and a cluster B with some of those traits that are more self-centered, narcissistic, antisocial, psychopathic, seems to be consistent with this type of behavior. And in many ways, it might help to explain as well why someone who's vegan would kill, right? Because there is the certain schizoid detachment that could be happening with someone like that, that they don't identify themselves with other humans or even see other people as people, right? They see th there's this aspect of, of dehumanization. And if you bring the cluster B personality disorder into the mix, which I think most people would argue that you need to have at least a flavor of that to commit this type of crime, right? Because you then need to live with yourself after the fact. You see a person who has a very twisted moral compass and a very twisted way of evaluating what is right and what is wrong is the type of person that might be, this is the, my wife and I'm married to her, but then they go and serial kill and rape violently several women because they were not valued as people, you know? So that is, I think, aligned with what Gary's bringing up, the schizoid trait with the hint there of the detached psychopathy, perhaps some narcissism there too, right? If it is indeed this person, it, it's kind of gutsy, right? To go study and do the PhD and bring all of the content and obsessive in a sense. Fascinating. Right. And, and one of the... Yep, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Gary. Well, well, one of the things we, we had said in the, in, the, in the last episode uh, that we did on this was that Ego is what ultimately catches these people, 
because the arrogance about, you know, I've committed the perfect crime or I, I'm going to get away or I covered every single possibility of how I could leave DNA or whatever, uh, you know, it, it, it can be your undoing. Uh, we saw that in a lot of historical offenders who had this godlike kind of quality uh, where they where they are asserting themselves like this and and um, like the attention and all of that. And um, so so I think the other thing to think about is if somebody is this intelligent, this mechanical and this regimented, why was it so easy to catch him? You know, that that's the other thing. If he was the one who did it, I mean, what was that about? For all of his study, I mean, he didn't go on to become a serial killer. He he committed, if this is the guy, one one mass murder and was almost immediately captured. And so I think this is an example of where the ego is your undoing. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and you you the the, the panel here nailed that piece of his ego on the last presentation that you had said his ego would be his undoing. And now, obviously, to that point you just made, uh, it certainly does appear that that is a potential uh, problematic behavior that has uh, exploded right in front of him. Uh, just real fast, just real quick, I just want to tell everybody, if you're just joining us, uh, and we've got about 9,500 people in here right now, just under 10,000 people. Uh, it's quite the arena. Uh, and for obvious reasons, if you're just joining us, we have doctors, uh, and I'm going to start with uh, Victor here this morning, this evening, uh, Dr. Victor uh, Petreka, uh, of course, Dr. Ann Burgess, who is an absolute legend, and of course, uh, her, her colleague and, and a legend in his own right, internationally, uh, Dr. Gary Bracato, uh, all uh, research uh, experts in uh, the criminal mind here. And also, I'm also proud to say that they uh, are part of the Cold Case Foundation, and I've just been honored to sit at their feet and uh, put my bowl of fruit down and say, okay, what, what do we have here and where do we go? So, uh, okay, so with one of the points, and by the way, also for, the, for our viewers, uh, I'm catching your questions. Uh, I know they're open to answering questions, but at the same time, um, you're, there are a lot of questions from 10,000 people. So we kind of, kind of have to run this, you know, through, you know, what I can catch and then I'll present them up on the screen. So please forgive me if I don't get to your question this evening and please forgive Dr. Bracado, Dr. Burgess, Dr. Pacheca. They, this is not their fault either. Uh, it is, you know, purely, uh, a matter of sticking a watermelon through a keyhole and, uh, we have to kind of, you know, stick to that, that process as a whole. Uh, okay, but one of the things I think is a fascinating piece that I would like to ask the panel, uh, the knife, it's not been found yet, according to the authorities. And uh, guys, let me explain what, uh, and, and Dr. Prakata, you mentioned the last time one or two, one or two scenarios, and I want to quote you. If this is a person who snapped, a knife would be chosen as if, as if, because it was a round. There is intimacy with his victims, the pain that it gives, plus the symbolic of the SA qualities, the sexual assault qualities. He would feel like he was the deliverer of justice, like a hunter potentially, but going on a mission to kill. Uh, what say the panel about this? 
this knife that I still think he's got it somewhere and the police just need to find it. So, um, Gary, uh, Dr. Picado, we'll start with you seeing how I quoted you just a second ago. Well, what, what you were quoting there is that I was saying that th there were two different potential scenarios. One would be somebody who was less methodical, more impulsive, and just sort of picked up a, a meat cleaver or a blade or a fork or some other sharp implement and went out and, and committed a mass murder. But I do not believe that's what's going on here. I think here the blade was specifically selected because of its intimacy with the victims, the pain it would impart, the um, the, the potential symbolic quasi-sexual quality that killing with a blade has. There's something very unique about offenders who use blades, I think. Uh, Victor and Ann could certainly speak about that. There is no coincidence in the choice of weapon. Uh, and, um, and I do think that for individuals who kill with a blade, what we tend to find is either that there's a whole arsenal of them that the person keeps. They have a fixation on blades and sharp implements, and you discover hidden somewhere in the house a whole collection of them. Or the, the blade itself is like a souvenir of a, of a time for them, which, as I had said, is like for the rest of us, a major life event. Like we would keep a, a memento of a wedding or, or, or the birth of a child. Uh, it's very hard to believe, particularly with an obsessional kind of fixated person, uh, that they would get rid of something like that. At the same time, he does, you know, this, this offender does seem to be someone who would be, who would want to get rid of evidence. So we don't know. But if I had to make a guess, that would be just a whiff too difficult to get rid of uh, because of its symbolism. And it's uh, I mean, it would be the embodiment of the motive, right? The embodiment of that imparting of power and virility and everything else that I think this person was attempting to impart. Uh, so so my sense is it's either that or some other trophy will be found uh, in possession. And And while we're on the subject of other things that will probably emerge as time goes on. The two things I think that are gonna keep coming out about whoever did this, if it's this arrested person or someone else, is lots and lots of stories about hot-headedness, moments of making weird kind of remarks, and a lot of insinuating the self into the um, events attending events at the college, perhaps uh, asking weird questions, posting, you know, under secret names on the internet, that kind of thing, because of a need to control to the last second every drop of this story. And yeah, um, he could have even gone to the memorials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In addition to what's, you know, to this question of what's up with the knife, I'm really interested in what's going to come out about that. And I would be shocked if there isn't a gigantic history of um, a lot of people going, wow, that guy got pretty angry pretty quickly over a really weird thing. You know, I didn't expect someone to get that furious at me just because I didn't want to spend time with them. That kind of, And a lot of people kind of going, what a weirdo, you know, that that kind of thing. And um, and feeling very confused about what they did to get someone that upset. Uh, but anyway, uh, on the subject of the knife, I would love to hear Anne and, and Victor's thoughts. Yeah, I'll just, uh, I'll I hope that when they went in and uh, they've gone through his uh, house and, and so forth, I hope they look under his mattress because I remember a case which was a mass murder. And when they ever looked under his mattress, it, it was amazing about the, the array of different kinds of knives. And then when, we asked what, uh, why this knife? 
And he had just gone out and bought that, the knife that he used in his mass murder. So it either can, I, I would agree with Gary, it either could be a one of great meaning, or it could be one that he bought specifically for what he was going to do in this, this case. But as to where it is, uh, obviously it wasn't in plain sight, we don't think, unless it was under the mattress. But I, I tend to think with you, Chris, that he's got it somewhere because it's too much of a, of a souvenir or memento of what happened. So it may not be on him in, in his possession, personal possession, but he might have a secret place. I'm also thinking of BTK, who is similar in many ways, and he had a lot of his souvenirs right in the house where uh, his family lived. So it's a and great didn't question. Keep him also, and didn't he keep them at his office, in his office drawer? He had some uh, um, some of the trophies well, there? Well, some of them he had in, he had stairs and they, they had a, a thing under the stairs, a door you could go in and so forth. I think that's, oh, that's where okay. this daughter, and it would be in her book, the daughter said that he had, had kept things. But at any rate, I agree. I, I, um, it will be very interesting of, of where that, when they find it or where it's hidden. I think it's hidden, but that's just fascinating thought. Fascinating thought. Dr. Patrico, what do you think? I think it will be very surprising if he does not have this saved somewhere that he knows. I have had the, I guess, honor or <laughs> however of interviewing at least 10,000 people who committed all sorts of crimes. And one thing that is always common with those who murder by knife is this sense of agency that they feel like they have a lot of control and they can feel the person's life seeping away. And they create this bond with the process. So it's not just the outcome, it's the process in itself. So if this was a critical piece of his process to use a knife, Discarding it would be the same as discarding a very valuable token that someone gifted to him. Um, I think it's a matter of how well he hid it. Chris, you're muted. Of course, uh, we, we keep talking about it. <laughs> And I'm the biggest offender. <laughs> well, you guys, fortunately, you've not seen me drive. So we are in good shape tonight. So, <laughs> okay. So let's, uh, let's shift gears then for a second. What about his, uh, uh, with his personality type and, and, and I'm going to quote you for a second, right? Uh, which, uh, you put up here, uh, he acted alone, male, and, you know, restricted lifestyle, which Gary had also, um, you know, commented into. Um, and, but what about his comment? Uh, was anyone else arrested? What do you think about that one, Dr. Burgess? Oh, uh, well, I think that's his control over, over the police. I think that this is going to, because that certainly made them have to stop and think 
a little bit. Uh, what are they going to say? Could there have been a second person, et cetera? So it, I see it as a manipulation, a control factor, uh, people thinking, oh my gosh, maybe they're to, to carry out. I think he thinks he's going to get away with it. And this would be part of, of the uh, fantasy that he could get away with it by saying it was somebody else and then it's somebody else's DNA or something like that. But that's what I think. Interesting. Uh, Dr. Bracado, thoughts? Well, it's a little complicated because, again, there is a lot of information we don't know that, you know, the Idaho police have to keep close to the vest. Uh, and so it could have a lot of meanings. Um, but I imagine if it turns out that this was indeed a lone wolf, like we think it is, I would certainly echo Anne's remarks about this having to do with control. But I think it also speaks to the fragmented kind of dissociated quality that some people have like this, uh, you know, with that sense of alienation from the self and, you know, who did this, you know, if it wasn't me, you know, could it have been me, you know, et cetera. But I, but I think this is a person who, who has complete control and awareness of his own motives and probably was doing this more uh, as an ego kind of thing to like a red herring to throw people off or a, a way of saying, uh, oh, am I your only suspect? A way of fishing for information on where things stand. But there is in a symbolic way, a whiff of that kind of fragmentation of the self uh, that we keep talking about in this individual. Um, but um, Victor, what do you think? Uh, I agree with you. And I think that it's important to point out that there is assuming, right? If this uh, suspect is indeed the person who committed this based on the information that has been released so far, and you're right, there's so much more for us to find out that there is, as I mentioned before, a, a certain element of gutsiness or being very bold and arrogant if you will and i based on the crime scene as you can see it, it was a disaster right it was all over the place so you probably had someone who was quite detached who had this sense of self-confidence and very hard time reading cues elsewhere and then once he gets there to that moment it's not exactly how he planned or how he imagined and then ends up much more chaotic than uh, it was originally thought. And that will be consistent with individuals who I have interviewed who are first timers who haven't committed the crime that they might have planned study, but they realize, right, that playing the guitar is not quite like reading how you play the guitar. Um, and you have that, that once again, difficulty reconciling what is actual happening in the world because of the lens that I'm seeing the world versus what I imagine it to be. So I think that is the main disconnect there, that you have a perception of self and then reality. Interesting. So staying with you for a second, we'll, I'm going to, we'll start with you on this particular thought process. Uh, in the 21st century here, the digital age, right? Uh, Dr. Pacheco, what are your thoughts about social media interactions? There's a lot of, uh, it's it's really fascinating. There have been literally, you know, probably it started with his name with two social media accounts. And now there have been multiple, multiple sock accounts that have created themselves, right, uh, in his name. So it's almost like this 
you know, cult following almost instantly uh, the moment he was arrested. So my, my question is this, what do you think about his, uh, and this is for the panel, we'll, we'll start with Dr. Petraco. What do you think about his uh, social media interactions? Dr. Bracado, you know, obviously mentioned that he would have probably, to maintain control, engage in, you know, like the memorial, for an example. I mean, we don't know that, but those would be the types of events uh, that he would participate in. And, and keep me honest, right? I mean, but what do you think in the 21st century, would he engage the social media platforms? Because that's instantaneous, evident of the fact that he's got now all of these sock accounts in his name. Right. And the internet, for better or worse, gives us the great benefit of anonymity, right? That you can be whoever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do without accounting for the full dark web side of things that we've done work in terms of research, looking at those aspects in particular, our clinical work too. And it gives a lot of opportunity to rehearse, to test out ideas, to run it by people. If the survey was not for research, that is a way of, right, of testing out plans. Uh, so it, as while we have wonderful benefits from the internet and social media, it also creates a whole arsenal of instruments and tools for people to really flesh out uh, their fantasies, right? And I have, as I'm sure uh, Dr. Bracado, Dr. Burgess worked with many folks who have very dark fantasies and they get stuck in the internet. And then we are working on trying to dissolve some of those and not go from virtual to real life. Um, but as you can imagine, if there is some type of medium for those ideas to get discussed and brewed and just grow from there, it can become very hard to contain. It's kind of like if you think about someone who maybe just tries a pill of Oxycontin in a party, and then I'm going to try another one, and then eventually it got escalate. I'm using heroin, and then it goes to fentanyl. The the same high that a person might derive from engaging in those social platforms with those more sadistic tendencies or, or more macabre, right? They would eventually escalate in certain fragile personality types that cannot really address them in other ways. Interesting. Uh, Dr. Burgess, what say you, what are your thoughts on that uh, principle about social media? Uh, playing a role in his um, mind? Well, we certainly looked at that in terms of the serial killers, which of course he's not, he is a mass murderer. But where I think what I've just read that have been coming over now is he went to class right after this happened. And that, and, and listened to what people had to say. I'd love to know if he kept journal notes or whatever that uh, in his own way, he may not have put anything up. We, we had hoped we might find something and I know Victor has looked for it, but it happened so fast. I'm sure it was all taken down, but that would give us a real window into uh, more of his thinking if we could ever get that. Uh, any of the students that are willing to talk about if he said anything, that would be so helpful. I mean, I, I think that the police, want help from people that knew him 
to be able to give this forward, at least the person that they have as a suspect. And uh, I would love to know if he said anything. Um, so please should be watching that kind of thing rather than social media. If it's all been, obviously he can't do social media now. So they're going to have to rely on what they can hear from people that knew him. Do you think there's some pre-incident behavior, Anne, on social media potentially? Yes. Um, I'm just wondering why there hasn't been. I, I know that they, they say he had no record. Um, but we do know that he was um, dealing with drugs at some point in his uh, growing up. So what did he use for money? Was he always working and having enough money? Uh, those kinds of things would, did he steal? You know, were there, did he start off and kind of practice? We, we know that a lot of there is some practice behavior that goes on pre. And um, certainly his siblings, he's got two sisters, might have known what kinds of behavior he, he showed. Uh, the only thing I've seen coming across from family members was about the vegan and the pots not having, but I mean, that I agree totally with, with Gary that, that talk about a control factor. You should, I won't eat your food if you don't cook it the way I instruct you to cook it kind of thing is uh, quite, quite telling of his uh, personality. Interesting. Uh, Dr. Gary, what say you thoughts? Well, you mean with regard to the social media component or or generally yeah. but yeah. yeah, is that would that be feeding him post post and pre? Well, you know, based on studies of people who are violent offenders um where there really isn't a sexual component, particularly people who kill multiple people, um one of the things that's interesting is that as I've said before that these less sexually, less overtly sexually motivated offenders do seem to have this this fixation on reaching out to the public, reaching out to authorities, so forth, to really manipulate the narrative, like we saw in David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, the Zodiac Killer, some others. Um, and, um, you know, the internet has created an extraordinary way of doing that, where, um, you know, it's very easy to forget how traceable it is and to kind of feel that if you just fake your name, you know, you could kind of do that, manipulate the narrative. And it doesn't help that it's very easy to be lost in the gigantic echo chamber of millions and millions of people who are just speculating and throwing ideas out there. You could have somebody who is intentionally saying, hey, you know, this isn't the narrative. Look over there, you know, that kind of thing. And you can imagine how it's also feeding the kind of godlike ego of a person like that and that and the idea that they're amused that they're right under your nose and you don't even know it you know that that power is described by a lot of people particularly serial killers for example the serial killer israel keys would bury a murder kit at a house or near a house where he intended to go back even years later to kill the people living there and oh, the idea was that they were walking around with the murder weapons that would be used to eliminate them right under their own feet, completely unaware. And that wow. gave him a great pleasure, a great thrill, right? That kind of idea. And um, Anne mentioned about BTK having snapshots and other things hidden right in the stairwell that his kids and wife were walking up and down those same stairs. And right in that stairwell was this dirty secret, you know, that they, so it's this kind of power trip of hiding behind the curtain. And I think, 
social media makes that just a little bit too easy because even for the best of us, the healthiest of us, social media is a way of constructing the way we want the world to see us. And you people sometimes fall prey to believing that the lives of other people are the way they depict them when they're manipulating that narrative. And it can even lead to suicides and terrible comparisons with other people. But, but imagine the power uh, that an insecure, small person can feel crafting that kind of narrative. And we know that that's the essence of so many of these egotistical offenders. The other thing that I would mention quickly that's very interesting to me is the the idea of the offender as experimenter. You know, I remember there's a a Sherlock Holmes story. I'm a great Sherlock Holmes fan. And there's a Sherlock Holmes story, The, the Adventure of the Devil's Root, uh, where... Holmes is investigating a case involving a toxic poison, a vapor, a poison that it's combustible and creates a vapor that kills. And when Holmes gets a hold of this bizarre uh, kind of uh, uh, poison, he uses it on himself because in order to really understand, he's got to experience it phenomenologically. What does it feel like to? And the other example of that is Justin Schmidt, you know, the the, the entomologist who created the pain scale for what it feels like when you're stung by certain in- hymenopteran and other insects. And so he would allow himself to be stung by insects so that he could document what the most painful stings were. And it's kind of, there are people like this that in the, that in the, the obsession with understanding the experience have to do it themselves. And so are you saying I'm if I was in one of your lectures, are you suggesting if I was in one of your lectures, you would walk up and go, blam, and just say, pay no, attention? No. But, but, but I guess what I'm getting at is the idea that I wonder, I'm finding myself wondering if the desire to understand that phenomenology and the godlike feelings and so forth that somebody might feel committing murder could in and of itself be part of a motive. That 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 I want to experience it myself, to understand it, and I want to understand these offenders to to understand me, and how to control it or how to, is it's an interesting question, and um and I think if that were the case, what you have to imagine is a person killing a person saying, boy, that felt good, let me do that again, boy, that felt good, let me do that again, boy, that and and this explosion of this frenzy of this, and then. You'd have to imagine, is this a person who would stop? Would they do that once and, and walk away? Or would they keep enjoying the godlike feeling and watching the press? And eat, and would they be scoping out someone else? I don't know. But if that's the motive, that's a motive that doesn't look like a mass murder. That's a motive that starts to look an awful lot like we see in serial killers. And so, you know, that's something I'm hoping Anne and Victor will comment on. But But I think that we have an awful lot to learn about whoever did this from the serial killer literature, because the the behavior starts to look like that kind of an individual. Victor and Anne, wouldn't you say that there's a lot to be learned from the serial killer study? Yes. And before you answer, uh, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry, Anne. Go ahead. No, I I would agree. No, what I was going to do is tie in the car concept. Yeah. So there's reports uh, to Gary's, you know, um, point there. There's reports that his father and him, they drove back together from Idaho to Pennsylvania. 
I don't, I don't know if they've been confirmed or not, but would that be something within the car that, you know, is he's, he's getting off on that, you know, thought and, 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 and then Victor. Well, certainly the car is, is important because that's how he gets around and the car knows what he did. Um, I, we're wondering if there's going to be some evidence in there, but that the father was there. Uh, we don't, that's an important piece that, that, that has to play an important, some part in all of this. Did the father plan this? Did he uh, notice anything in the car, but that he evidently probably didn't get nervous that somebody was going to find out about him until that came out. And that came out about, four weeks into didn't it that they had the the white uh white car yeah and whether yeah and, I was, and the, right and it's still he, unconfirmed it's still unconfirmed if his dad actually drove with him but sure. so if we take the father out of the equation we do know he had the car yeah uh, and, and they is, have they have impounded the car okay and they're sure it is the car or that yeah it's the, his, the authorities his have confirmed or is it his father's car? It's his car. Uh, no, I don't know that answer, to be honest with you, personally. Okay. Uh, I believe it. it's in his family circle, for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, the car is very important. I, th I think that we're, we'd all agree that that's going to be uh, an imp important evidence piece also. Um, was it parked there? I mean, questions that people might have remembered seeing that car in the neighborhood. Hopefully some people might come up with that. That's another thing that uh, police could are asking for any information that you've seen, any anything like that to, again, give them more in their timeline. Yeah, so that people in the chat are saying it's registered in his mother's name, but I don't have firsthand knowledge of that, but that could very well be uh, true. But until we confirm that, obviously, uh, but so, Victor, what what are your thoughts on uh, this line of thought process? The one thing that keeps popping in my mind is that it will make a huge difference whether the father drove with him or not, right? Because that is a very long journey, uh, and there is a lot of opportunity and silences, and how much would have been discussed or not, you know, when. Not to say that it's but possible. Actually, I can certainly vision many individuals who could commit this type of offense, hold down to their chest and have the perfect long ride like nothing happened. But that talks to the personality archetype, right, of that person who doesn't have the heavy consciousness. So that might be just critical uh, if we get the confirmation on that piece on was it a solo ride or not. Okay. All right, so I'm going to get now to, I have 29 questions tagged. Put your seatbelts on. Uh, and I'm going to just serve them up to the panel. And then, so you guys individually weigh in on, um, you know, who wants to take it. But uh, some of the, and by the way, these are, I'm just going to put a couple of new members up. Thank you, Air Bear. I love these, these names. These, the, and Debbie, thank you so much. Uh, and all right. So BTK studied under this Dr. Ramsey. Okay. Yes. Well, we do know, uh, that information, uh, and you can imagine how that 
professor must be feeling. So that is a great point, and uh, I'm sure there'll be more to come uh, in in the time uh, coming up here. Uh, this one here is Outstanding Pro, Most Outstanding Professionals. Thank you, Dave. I agree. This is the, like the dream panel here. Uh, he still has the knife. Everyone here tr treats the knife like a compound bow or 30-06. We all hunt big game here. Uh, the fact he is one of us, sad. Yeah, and I think the panel agrees, right? I mean, he that knife is critical to him, right? Let's see here. I believe it was personal. He watched these girls, and they wouldn't have chosen him. He was angry. What say you, panel? I, I can pick up on that because I think we had a lot of conversations about it. I guess we can share, right, and our new study without giving too many details that we are exploring um, the patterns of involuntary celibates or incels and the sense of being rejected and the deeply rooted misogyny and how sometimes that can boil over and result in these very grotesque type of crimes, particularly targeting uh, female victims or male victims who they see as less deserving than they are uh, of relationships. So in that sense, uh, it's I don't think we can quite rule that out. In I will probably put my chips in that still being one factor of the motivation. Okay. Uh, who wants to take this question? What role, if any, does a strict religion play in these killer lives, it seems to be a more commonality and more in many brutal killers, mass murderers, or serial killers' backgrounds. Dr. Gary? Well, it's, it's, it's one of those things that is sometimes present, but not universally present. Um, but you have to imagine an individual who possibly in a hereditary way or possibly because of the mixed messages in which, you know, they were raised, um, already has a problem with moral compass, conscience, and then has somebody kind of barking at them about, you know, you should develop a harsh superego and be a good boy, you know, and, and do the following and so forth. And feeling all the time that you just don't feel that guilt and you don't, you're not interested in those kinds of things. Um, it, it can get complicated because especially where there's a kind of a mixed message on the part of family where on the one hand, there's a lot of emphasis on punishment and moralism uh, mixed with messages of you're inadequate and you're not good enough and we don't love you just for existing uh, can be very complicated for a developing child and leave one feeling very helpless, powerless, angry, looking for a new God to replace the one that they think they don't please, and which usually is the self. And, um, you know, so, so that's an interesting question. Um, but, but, but I think it's not something that's present all the time. We certainly see it in some serial offenders and some mass murderers being raised in a highly moralistic atmosphere. And in fact, I do think there's a whiff of moralism to this offender with them um, punishing people who, you know, in other words, saying, um, I don't do the things you do because I'm in control, not because I can't do them. I choose not to do them. And therefore you are out of control for doing them. So I do think there's a little whiff of that. I'm a better person than you quality present in, in some of these offenders um, where the idea is you're punishing young women, let's say, for drinking, partying, 
having partners, uh, premarital sex, whatever, because there's that sense of, of you know, <laughs> I wasn't allowed to do, I wasn't able to do any of that stuff. Uh, and so you chalk it up to, I chose not to, because I'm a good person, better than you. Um, but that's not always true. It's just true in some offenders. But but I think that for some people, um, falling short of a standard can make them enraged. You're muted. You're, you're muted, Chris. I'm three for three tonight. I'm batting a thousand. I, I really am. Straight I was just I was just going to add what Gary said is you'd want to know what his pattern of um, of religion was. I mean, did he ever go? Was he baptized? And, you know, what denomination was it? Did he go when he was in college? Things like that. And to see if there's not been any change. Um, you'd want to know if there's been any change. That's always what you're looking for in a pattern. And we don't uh, have so, any, of course, so we can't comment. Yeah, well, well, we've got your mic, and uh, what do you think about the roommates uh, being spared, the two girls downstairs oh, that, now? that's a great question. That's a, a great question. We don't know whether they, you know, the, the police keep saying they were targeted. They, somebody was targeted. We don't know what, what that's all about. So say there was, we hypothetically say there was, and it was one of the four or two of the four, and it didn't include whoever was on that first floor. So that would be one answer. The other answer people say is he could be exhausted after four, killing four. That takes a lot of, of energy and, and so forth. And um, maybe there had been enough noise. He got scared. He didn't think he wanted to do six, I guess is what you'd say. So that would be the two answers I've, I, I would think of. Interesting. Can you just uh, add to that quickly? Yes, please. Well, uh, well, it's just very quickly. I suspect that this offender entered from an upper level, and that the fact that the people on the bottom floor were spared may have something to do with being interrupted, exhausted, something that, in other words, just didn't get to them. Uh, but we had talked also in the last podcast about how that thing of sparing some people and killing some people can add to the godlike feeling that some offenders have. And some offenders talk about that, leaving some people alive because it makes them feel that they have power over who lives and dies, um, like almost like a control group in an experiment, right? Uh, that doesn't that doesn't get the uh, independent variable, you know. So, but um, but but just putting that out there that it may have something to do with the timing, and that they were the last people that he would have hit if he if he you know, uh, bumped into that is, or interacted with if he was coming from the upstairs, but, but I'm, I apologize for the interruption. No, no, you're fine. Um, uh, David, what, what do you think? Do you think his veganism could have been a coping mechanism of some sort? I mean, does that even play into the equation here? Maybe, maybe not. I, Sorry to I send that it, question to you. Yeah. I yeah, I, I think it has to do with the idea of um, of having the power over what lives and dies. Yeah, I oh, think about it. Like on inside, and sometimes I feel that there's such a thing as the Occam's razor, right? And I would think about it. The relationship that comes to me will be more one of having control over something, right? Controlling very specifically about what I put in my body or what type 
of behavior are engaging. So to me, it suggests if there is a link would be the one of someone who has the need to control things. Interesting. Uh, chances of him committing suicide. Thoughts? Like I can talk about that because <laughs> as most people probably noticed uh, in his pictures that were released, he's wearing a safety smock, right? Um, so I've been working for jails and prisons for many, many years, and that's exactly what I would have done if he was admitted into my facility. Whether he claimed suicide or not, whether he's guilty or innocent, because there's a lot of pressure that comes with the attention that the case is come uh, is is getting right so that a hundred percent would be what most facilities would do uh because it is a, a high risk and one thing to keep in mind is that once you place somebody in a suicide watch in a jail or prison you're not only keeping that person away from others you're keeping others away from them because that is also a real concern right that other uh, inmates could try to harm him because that can be a uh, quick shoot to fame, right? For someone who kills a very infamous uh, person. And even if they are, even if he's never found out to be guilty or innocent. So th that is a really good point. And, and so while you've got the mic, uh, uh, Victor, what, why don't you start with this question? Then uh, docs, you guys can weigh in on this. If we had, he have, he had to have known his DNA would be found at the scene and the progress with digital footprints. Was he really that naive or was he just overconfident? I think that's, that's really to what I mentioned before. I think it is the combination of being overconfident going into it. And once he's in the middle of the dance floor, the music's not playing to the same beat that he anticipated and things be, kind of lost a little bit of control there. So then you get that really disorganized uh, pattern within the crime scene. So that will be, uh, a, it, it didn't go as planned. Okay. Anybody else? Anybody else? Well, I, I would just say this is something that, for example, happened with BTK. When you overestimate your ability to control a whole group of people, for example, it, you know, BTK wound up having to do all kinds of rehearsals and practices for controlling whole family if he was going to try that again, like exercising his fingers and increasing his ability to strangle or control and all of that. So that what, that you wonder about the arrogance of somebody who it looks like may not have ever committed an offense like this previously, starting out with a mass murder really speaks to, you know, the, 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 the sense a person has of their ability to control that kind of environment. And I think they might have said, oh, you know, if they're sleeping or, you know, it's nighttime and I've surveyed the area, that's all I need. Um, but I think would probably have been very authentically shocked at how many snafus arose along the way. This is the kind of person that if they went on to become a serial killer would have learned a great deal each time about the things that really go on. Like, boy, I wasn't expecting that to happen. And they get better and better at doing it. Um, but but this, I think, I, I really want to echo the point that Victor's making. I think it was that combination of that lack of imagination of what was really going to happen, which results from poor social skills, I think, uh, and the way people are really going to act when you are attacking them, right? And then on top of it, the the um, you know the kind of arrogance and uh, thinking that just having intellectual knowledge of how murders operate was going to be enough. 
uh, is 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 the problem. It's sort of like you know we we could all read a book on driving a car, but until you actually get a car and drive one, chances are you don't anticipate what's really going to happen. But I think that lack of social skills was his undoing a little bit also, um, because there was no imagination that if you attack these people, they might wake up, thrash at you, cut you, you might bleed and leave DNA, you know, you 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 know things like that. Um, that that I think really speak to to lapses and even the most intelligent individual. Um, but um, Anne and Victor, wouldn't you say there was a? I think not really anticipating the way people would act when you attack them like that. Oh, I, I agree. I also will be anxious to see the crime scenes to see whether he wore gloves. I mean, you would think he would have been prepared to to at least have some kind of covering that wouldn't leave the um, the DNA. So, and the other possibility is he thinks he can get away with it. He thinks he can challenge DNA, and we'll see. You know that that would be another just to keep this going. Uh, that would fit into his ego. That, that is interesting. So question, thoughts on BCK having killed before? There are two other 13-day murders in the years before. Uh, it definitely seems like a huge first crime to target four people for such a controlling OCD guy. Uh, but those other murders, I think we understand were much earlier even a couple of years before and i don't know if he was in the environment at that time but yeah. i don't know if we have evidence of that do we uh, but that's okay. a great question but your your thoughts on him controlling the four people like you just mentioned you know even dennis Rader had to adapt and improvise after the otoro family i think that was his his first five victims right and then right. from there he had to kind of figure out okay you know, that can't happen again because I, I believe the mother was a karate instructor, uh, if I remember right. And so he had to, he had such an issue uh, with her and, you know, back in the early days. So uh, really good question, everybody. And by the way, we have 10,800 people uh, now in the arena and it just, uh, they, they're coming through, through the doors. And thank you, everybody, for being here. If this is your first time here on the interview room, uh, please uh, subscribe and hit that like button. Uh, we we are grateful for everybody being here. Um, so uh, I believe he was indirect a, an indirect disciple of people like Ted Bundy. And if he didn't get caught, he would do it again. The victims weren't known and didn't matter whoever did this. What are your thoughts on that panel? And then, uh, uh, Victor, we'll start with you. I think that Gary was... Uh, suggesting the a little bit right that there is a quality of obsession in terms of the person who did it whether it was this guy or not being a student of previous crimes and with the profile of this person actually being uh, someone who pursued graduate studies and a phd in criminology it really brings up the uh, the perfect storm in which this individual was indeed very much connected to the previous crimes that other people performed. And if there is the obsessive quality associated with it, then you see the escalation that goes from being curious or being fascinated, perhaps even to being inspired by someone else. Okay. Dr. Burgess, what say you? Um, 
what's name me on the uh what I've always said I think kill again. Oh I'm sorry. Yeah, will he kill it? No, you're fine. You're fine. Uh do you um, think he would have killed again? He would kill again. I, I I believe that if that's the question. So yeah. I'm so glad if this is the right person that he was caught. Yep, Dr. Bricado. Well, I, I think I'd mentioned in the, the last time that only about 11.78% of people commit mass murder either um, had killed previously, you know, with a cooling off period or did so after. So that um, it's kind of unusual for someone to commit mass murder to be a serial killer, but it does happen. And when it does happen, they look an awful lot like the person who committed this particular offense uh the because what it looks like is is that there was no real um clear practical i hate to use that word but practical motive like you see in people commit mass murder mass murder for criminal aims like gang activity or uh organized crime or in the context of a robbery or something and the emotional doesn't really have the quality of being impulsive, like a person who just got thrown out of school and flipped out, that kind of thing. It looks more like a person who methodically, in a cold-blooded way, was able to play out these things. And what it also looks like is that if this is the person, that there is a pretty clear linear pattern from early experiences that left that would probably leave a person feeling out of control, small, invisible, unattractive, and then kind of the playing out ultimately of fantasies later, which suggests that the victims were sort of symbolic of a, the them that has always hurt me, right? Whether it's a parent or or a, 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 some other authority figure or a uh, women in general or some group. So that then you go out in the world and you sort of cast like a like a person making a movie. You find somebody who is symbolic of that and you eliminate them and you get a sense of satisfaction. But what invariably happens is these people become kind of like George Lucas. You know, they're not happy with the vision that they have created. So they need to go out and keep doing it to 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 get it more and more perfect and feel it to its to the hilt and um so that so that i can't help but feel that the motivations present here are more like those that would be seen in an individual that wouldn't be sated that would keep wanting it and to see if the experience gets more and more thrilling like with a drug uh if you keep upping it i i am suspicious that whoever did this is somebody that would be at risk of of committing murder again consistent with what but Anne and Victor are saying, because the motive comes from the self fantasies, so forth, projected onto the world, as opposed to a clear person who has actually done something that once they're eliminated, you feel that you've leveled the playing field, right? That that projection is just going to keep going on indefinitely. So what reason is there to believe the person would stop? Interesting. Uh, Interesting. Uh, Victor, your thoughts? I agree. It'll be uh, hard. Why don't you take this question? Oh, sir. Sure. Yeah, why don't you take this question here? Uh, the, this question is, I think this is a fascinating question. Uh, so Motor Max said, Motor Man MX, I love that name, Motor Man MX. I love it. Do you think uh, there are questions he would want to be questioned about? I think this is towards the police. You know, if 
what's he going to do in the interview room? I think that's where this question is going. What do you think he would want to know? Well, circling back to what Anne had mentioned before, that there is a, a certain flavor of gaming law enforcement and the police that might even be a, a source of, of pleasure for him to continue to engage and continue to just play the cat and mouse game with the police, especially if it's someone as we are at this point um, realizing that it's someone who is very educated, smart, and has been stu studying, right, this type uh, of crime. So this suspect, if it is indeed the person who, and who did this crime, yes, I'm glad that he got caught. I think he, the person who did it probably would have done it again and engaging that perfectioning of the crime. And uh, there's, I think, a lot of questions that he would love to be asked about his process, his process and how he put it together and what was the areas that could be improved in future. And for us in research, he probably, whoever did this would be a wonderful participant because they would just spill the beans on how it could have, should have gone better. Interesting. So you, you're, you guys are leaning towards, and I, and I would, I agree with you from an investigator perspective, right? That the, the you know, that he's going to want to just sit there if he's positioned correctly, right? I mean, pre-interview uh, by talking to, you know, you guys, guys like you, and which, you know, we've done many, many times before you go into an interview like this with this guy. Uh, and, and then kind of, you know, positioning correctly. I remember years ago, uh, I had a serial child killer. His name, his name was Brandon Wilson. And he went to LA and he had, you know, killed um, a little boy in the bathroom. And long story short, he gets off a bus in West Hollywood. And the forensic psychologist at the time was Dr. Park Dietz, uh, one of your colleagues, you know, back, you know, he's a brilliant, brilliant mind as well. And the first question he asked me, he says, Chris, he said, where is he? I said, Doc, he got off a Greyhound bus in West Hollywood. He said, wonderful. He said, let's make him famous. And I said, okay, how are we going to do that? He said, when you approach him, okay, go below him, have them position him in the bullpen at LAPD homicide, uh, which was an open bullpen and let him be part of the action before you get to him. And he said, just build him, build him. And when you get to him, just kind of go below him and then look up and just kind of shyly introduce yourself and say, you know, hi, I'm detective so-and-so, you know, blah, blah, blah. I understand you may have something to do with this child. Uh, just out of curiosity, how would you like to be famous? And that's what, he, that was the line. And he leaned over, looked down at me and quote said, you can do that. And, it was on from that point, right? That point on. So to your point, uh, Victor, I, I agree with you. I think I, you know, that would be my approach. Listen to what you just said and then kind of frame it uh, into uh, a really informative, informative interview. Uh, here's, here's a good question uh, for the panel. Is he a psychopath? 
And all three of you get excited when that question came on the screen. <laughs> so who wants to start? I'm going to defer to either Gary or Victor, since they're the, they're, they're the experts in this labeling. Victor, would you like to tackle it or would you like uh, to? We can tackle it together. I, I think that there, there are definitely schizoid traits, in my opinion, um, which is not exactly like in the category of psychopathy in this most traditional um, nomenclature, per se. Um, and we have to be cautious because schizoid traits have the sense of detachment, whereas the psychopathy has the detachment, but there's also pleasure that is derived from it. And that would, of course, involve us doing more interviews, learning more about this person to know in the end, is this someone who was really curious about the mechanisms of crime, killing and executing versus someone who had more of this true ego, syntonic pleasure that was derived from causing pain and suffering onto others. If it is the latter, then you're getting more towards the psychopathic type of scenario. Um, the suspect, what we have seen so far, or we've heard about his history, will be more associated with the earlier, more of the more obsessive, detached, awkwardly relating to their environment. Um, but it doesn't preclude the psychopathic traits. And of course, you can have both within one person, right? Uh, one doesn't exclude the other. Okay, Doc, Doc Brucato. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I would echo much of that. And I think that you have to remember that psychopathy is kind of a spectrum. I mean, in the work I've done with, with Michael Stone, uh, you know, in, in the book I did, The New Evil, we talk about that there's a spectrum that sort of goes from narcissism through varying levels of psychopathy to ultimately to sadism. So it's a very, very wide spectrum. And in individuals who who commit homicide, particularly serial killing, about 50% of people who meet criteria for some degree of psychopathy also meet criteria for schizoid personality. And it raises the question of whether some people who have a schizoid quality are getting caught in the net of what people like Hare and people who write about psychopathy are talking about, that kind of lack of compassion, reading people, awkward interpretations of people's gestures, you know, kind of reading them wrong in a kind of paranoid way, perhaps, less feelings, more experimentation with people when you kill them. Um, but, but it's also possible that there are other traits there that have a more psychopathic quality. For example, um, if this offender this, this, the, is the person that's under arrest, um, you know, it's interesting that you would think about things like, um, you know, fearlessness, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, having a kind of grandiose, arrogant, nasty quality with other people and holding grudges, uh, you know, fascination with violence and, and other people's crimes, things like that, that you don't necessarily see in people that are just kind of schizoid. Right, that are not that interested in people or how other people feel. Um, so that, you know, I think what you're probably looking at here is a mixed bag of personality traits where there is some of the qualities that you see in somebody that's a little bit on that spectrum and, and a little bit kind of odd. Uh, and you mix them together and you wind up with this really kind of complicated soup. Um, but but that's not uncommon. As I said, it, it, it happens at about half 
half of these of people who have psychopathic traits. Um, I think it's a particularly disturbing mix because when people like that commit offenses, you can see, um, you know, a lot more of this kind of creepy experimenting and, you know, uh, uh, for example, a subject that is of great interest to to Anne and Victor and, and me uh, in terms of work we've done is that people like that can really engage in a lot of mutilation of, of victims and a lot of butchery to sort of see what's inside of a person or what happens when I do this to this body part and all of that. So I think that kind of detachment is associated with some of the most brutal offenses that we see. I don't know if Victor or Anne wants to say something about our mutilation work, uh, but there certainly was a great deal of mutilation present in this in this crime. Uh, wouldn't you say, Victor and Anne? Oh, yeah. Definitely. I mean, you could almost call it a We don't know. Unfortunately, we still don't know till we see the medical examiner's report or something, but uh, it has all the appearance of it. Victor? Yeah, and I agree with you that once we get more information about the actual crime scene, but just hearing about the number of stab wounds, that has a maiming type of quality to it, right? And that disfiguring the victim because to kill a person, you don't need to stab them dozens of times. And just the uh, sheer aggression and violence that was there was consistent with our work on dismemberment and mutilation um, to similar but different types of aggression in which we saw the combination, as Gary was talking about, between that more schizoid, curious, and psychopathic trait um, that seems to be consistent with this uh, crime scene or this case that we are talking about. How about this one, uh, the two sisters? How do, how do you think that affected? And Anne, I think you you point, you point um, went this way a little bit earlier in the, in the interview here. Yeah, um, I think I'm, that's really interesting that he's got, both sisters are older. I don't know how much older, but at any rate, uh, I'm thinking Kemper had older and younger and, and several of them, but he certainly grew up in a house, unless there's a large age difference. We, again, we don't know, so I don't want to speculate too much, but at any rate, that he certainly would have, it would be interesting what his relationship was with them. Were they good buddies? Were they fighting all the time? You know, that kind of thing. Did they start picking on him before the peers started picking on him? Those kinds of questions would, would give a lot of good information. And the parents would be the ones that could help with that. Not that you're going to be able to get that kind of information, but uh, to really understand this, this man, this suspect, you'd want as much information on that as possible. But that he's so misogynist is... is it would be also interesting to see what they look like, you know, where they, uh, he seems to be, uh, the, the, the victims, we haven't talked as much about the victims, very attractive, I think mostly blonde, except for the, uh, well, was seemed dark haired, but certainly the two, if they were the two that were targeted were, were very attractive and blonde. So interesting. Uh, one of the reporters on news nation is, uh, He's tweeted out that a defense lawyer uh, confirmed that this individual's dead. And he did drive back from Idaho to Pennsylvania yeah. together. So that's an interesting uh, piece of this uh, puzzle that will, I'm sure, take up here shortly.
Okay, so how are you guys doing on time, by the way? We're an hour and 47 minutes into it, and I still have another 13 questions that we can get to. Are you are you are you still okay? Yeah. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Uh, because I think this is uh, an amazing opportunity to be in a master class here. Um, so we had answered this question earlier on that yes, he was probably monitoring uh, and would participate in information on social media. Uh, Doctor Petrecka uh, handled that one earlier. So. Um, let's see here. Do you think he would have a conversation with his parents after the report of the vehicle hit the news? That's an interesting question. So mom and dad watching national news and a white Elantra comes on and they go, Hey, we have a white Elantra. Yeah. How would, how would uh, BCK handle that one? Is, you know, pure, what do you think? I mean, not that we know, right? Not that we know. Right. Um, that didn't come on until he had already been back in Pennsylvania. Am I have yeah. got the timeline? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. and you'd have to know whether they were following it. Um, yeah, I, I don't think they were on to him yet because I, I've, you know, a little insight, uh, you know, they were probably on to him about 10 days. Uh, and then it took some time to get the warrants. Yeah. And, you know, but they they had him under strict surveillance, uh, probably with a fugitive task force back there in Pennsylvania, uh, and you know they locked in on him pretty tight. And I think what they were doing is waiting for, you know, some DNA uh, confirmation, and we don't know how that's going to come. We've heard different things about, um, you know, the car that it came out of the car. One of the things that I brought up from an investigative position is don't. Don't underestimate that dog, the power of the dog that was in the house. Right. Man, if they find trace evidence of that animal in that car, potentially from transfer, uh, you know, the silent witness, right? You find that dog's hair in that Elantra somewhere. Um, that's just another, just another problem. Did he cut himself? We, we believe the evidence will probably indicate at some point that, yeah, uh, he has, uh, uh, cut himself potentially. Uh, why did he do all his undergraduate and PA yet move completely across the country to do his grad schooling in a small town university? Who wants to take that? I mean, I can, I, I don't think that's particularly unusual. People move around to go to graduate school, especially in PhD programs where you try to align yourself with a faculty member. So I, I, can think of hundreds of people who have moved cross country to further their education. What do you think, Gary? Well, I found myself very interested in the timeline that of somebody beginning the doctoral program at about 28 years old. And part of me wonders if it's not necessarily so unusual, but part of me wonders if we're going to find out that there was there were academic issues or behavioral issues or oddness or drug use or something that interrupted the academic career. And, and like a lot of people who've got certain personality structures, some people can feel great sympathy for them and kind of help them out. And some people could say, uh, this person's really making me uncomfortable. And I would imagine that uh, this could be, I mean, again, we don't know if this is the offender, but 
it, it's an interesting thing to think about that in this suspect, there might have been uh, a kind of chaotic history there in terms of moving between institutions, or but we just don't know. But it's not uncommon in people who have these kinds of problems, like drug use and perhaps needing a period of time in treatment or um, some hot-headedness and inappropriateness that gets kind of talked away in the in the, in the interest of protecting somebody and and allowing them to go on and have an academic career. So I'm interested to know, you know, what we're going to find out in terms of what it is that led to somebody thinking perhaps it's time to scoot across the country, start fresh. Um, right. I, I don't know, uh, but but I think the jury's out on that. Well, I have, yeah, I have two thoughts. One is, uh, had he applied to any other schools? Was this, uh, you know, you want to always ask that? Was there any financial, going to be any financial uh, scholarship, something like that, that can all affect. But also, we all, in our serial killer study, that if something had happened, especially if there was an infraction of the law, that it was not unusual for them in, in the day back then they would join the army or join the military but to get away from that town might have been was there anything that was going to come down had he gotten into any trouble uh, all of those things should be certainly I, I i know will be looked at that's a good question interesting so antonio's asked uh, did he reach uh did he was rehearsing for his crime in his research and i know we kind of uh talked about that a little bit earlier, but um, Victor, uh, Dr. Petrecka, what do you think? Yeah, well, it's, of course, hard to tell for certain whether it's a rehearsal, but if it is indeed this person who committed the crime, there is absolutely a, a level of researching process, right? And trying to relate and learn from others' experiences, whether it was for academic purposes or for personal purposes in uh, potentially this case. So that is something that might come out. I, I suspect it will. If there will um, inevitably, there's some type of forensic psychiatric evaluation that will be done because of the level of the crime, right? The, oftentimes, the insanity defense will come into play. So those will require a very extensive uh, evaluation by uh, designated forensic psychologists or psychiatrists to make uh, those type of determinations. And that's when a lot of the information will be teased out. Right. I, I would just add to that, that if this offender does turn out to be the suspect, um, that questionnaire that he seems to have developed is almost like a blueprint to yeah. the interview yeah. that you would use because you would basically, that it would suggest this is what this person would be curious to have somebody ask him so that you would say so that that the blueprint would essentially suggest what did you feel you know what was going through your mind why were you so depressed <laughs> right that seems to have underlied this right because that seemed to be a really important piece of the questionnaire for him right and and what was this kind of mixture of motive and opportunity and what you were feeling personally that came together in that moment like a perfect storm and I think it tells you everything you need to know about what this guy wanted the world to kind of ask him if he wasn't so isolated. You know, you could just imagine, you know, wanting so badly to tell somebody I've been hurt. You know, I'm confused. I don't read people well. It, it just kind of like, you know, leads to me getting more and more alienated. I might seem detached, but it's really that I'm bad at connecting with other human beings. And I think it's important to emphasize when this word schizoid is used, 
If you were to look it up, you would see that what it talks about is this kind of choosing of solitary activities, not being, being very interested in people. But I will tell you, as somebody with expertise in psychosis, I have had a conversation or two with schizoid people. And I will tell you that what they talk about is that they fail at connecting with people, even though they try. So they just choose to stay alone. It's that many of them describe being failed at social skills because for them, reading the nuances of other people is so difficult. So they don't know how to navigate it. So that's why they choose solitary activities. The root of it is not not being interested. It's just being really bad at it. And um, so so that I, I think that has to figure into our conceptualization uh, if we're going to say that there's a schizoid quality to an individual. is it, At what point did they say, I'm just not good at this? <laughs> Nobody which, understands which dovetails it. Into that question. Yeah. It dovetails into this question. Do you think he was, obviously he's a mass murderer, uh, you know, a spree, yeah. or do you think he was evolving? into a serial, right? I just, I throw that up to the panel. Yeah. Well, well, I'll just say while, I, while the mic's on here that, that a spree killer would be somebody who, um, without a cooling off period, killed, right? In other words, commits mass murder, but the, but, but the idea is, is they're not all necessarily in one place, right? Like, like Elliot Roger or Adam Lanza, who are not mass murders, but spree killers, right? Because they kill someone in one location and then go, somewhere else and kill other people it's no cooling off period in this individual we would have if he were to kill again there already was a there already was a a cooling off period of about a month uh, uh so far so so that doesn't speak to a spree killer that would speak to someone with the potential to become a mass murderer and that's that's a lovely compliment you got there victor it's, yes <laughs> I had think, we all think you're the that you're i the had to put that too, up so I just for you Victor, I had to put it up. I am blushing. I know. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Did somebody already ask what kinds of steps you might have taken based on his education to minimize any trace evidence? Yes, we've actually hammered that question a little bit earlier, Beth. But that is a good point, and thank you so much. I I love this question. If you guys had the opportunity to sit down with him, I know each of you would be chomping at the bit. And and but here's the reality: you may get to at some point. You know, for the public's uh, knowledge, uh, just FYI for those of you that don't know the panel here, uh, they may be sitting with him at some point. And so, uh, be careful how you answer this particular question because of that potential reality. Uh, but um, so, and I don't even know if you want to answer the question now, you know, based on that thought process, but Victor, well, you seeing how you have a fan club. Uh, <laughs> well, I, it's one of those that every time there's a high profile case that comes across, there's part of me that's like, yes, I want to interview this person and learn and figure out what's going on. But at the same time, I don't know if I want to do this one, maybe I'll pass it on. But the question, <laughs> we don't go into uh, evaluations with expectation of diagnosing somebody. Um, we go into it with the expectation of learning about this person to figure out what is going on in the developmental history. Are there any predisposing factors or any precipitating factors, any perpetuating protect factors in their biological, psychological, their social environments that 
maybe we'll come to a hypothesis that helps to explain the behavior. And sometimes the hypothesis is consistent with the diagnosis, but not always. You know, in some cases we might see schizoid traits, but not a full schizoid personality disorder diagnosis. And not to confuse schizoid and schizophrenia, those are, those are very different things, as Karen, uh, as Gary was pointing out. You know, so we had to really look at all the information to then come up with a diagnosis. The diagnosis is just a, a consequence of the work, but the opportunity to interview and really try to tease out and dig through what was going on through this person's childhood in their thought process beforehand at the time of the crime and the danger assessment, right? Is their potential for future violence in the future? I think that is from a clinical perspective, the more interesting part. Okay, so I love this question because now it's a little bit broader. If you could ask one question, what would it be? And uh, we're going to start with uh, Dr. Burgess. And 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 you have been studying these guys. You are a legend. And those of you uh, that don't know Dr. Burgess, I mean, the the whole TV series series Mindhunter uh, was. She actually had a, a somebody play her life, and so. What is the one question, and this is an opportunity for the audience to ask each of you experts yeah. questions. I mean, it's a rare opportunity. Which one would you ask him? Well, my question would have, since my study is usually based on early developmental kinds of, of uh, background questions, is how far back does he can he remember? I want to know how far back he can remember having a situation that he was really frightened when he was really frightened. I think I'd want to know that, if that's only one question, then I'd develop questions around that because what we found in the backgrounds of serial killers is that there was a some very profound experience, situation that seemed to stay with the, um, with the offender and he carried it out and then it was really in the commission of the offense. So that's, that's where I'd want to start. Hey, uh, Gary, what say you? One question you would want to ask him. I would want to ask, what is it you were trying to say with this offense? What was it you're trying to communicate? I, I don't believe that even the most psychotic people, unless they're using drugs or alcohol to an incredible degree or have brain damage or something, and I don't believe that even the worst offenders are logical. I think it's all about understanding the premise that motivated the behavior, and then the behavior becomes, it all starts to fall into their own idiosyncratic logic. I think there's a premise that we don't understand here. What is it you were trying to say or do with this behavior? What was the goal? And for me, once we have that, everything is going to fall into place. Uh, it's the missing puzzle piece for me. I think right now all we have is speculation from similar offenses, but sometimes there are totally idiosyncratic things that motivate a person, and then suddenly everything will start to make a lot of sense. So, so I just want to get to the heart of what he was trying to say through this, as an, because I see criminal offenses as almost like uh, the way that one might think about an artistic output. This is a point that is often raised by John Douglas, profile John Douglas, that is a kind of like an artistic output 
so that you think about what's being projected into it. What does it say about your personality? What does it say about what you're trying to tell the world? What does it say about what you, how you want the world to see you? So I think that I would want to get into that question of the why of it, which is right in line with what he wanted to know from other offenders. What were you feeling? What was, you know, what happened in your background that made you so that I imagine that that's got to be a pretty important question for him. Fascinating. Uh, Victor? So assuming that I had the chance to develop some rapport with him, the question that I would try to open the Pandora box with would be asking him to tell me what gets you really excited and what really makes you afraid. That simple question when you're talking to offenders can give you a lot of rope to pull to understand the mechanism of this person's mind, what gets them really thrilled and then what they shy away from. That'll be my question. Fascinating. Fascinating. Do you think he'll uh, be cooperative? Victor? I think with a skilled interviewer who can build a rapport, I I can see that happening. You know, I think that we all have situations in which you have someone who in the very beginning was not cooperative, but then you develop a little bit of the dynamic. Sometimes you need a partner, right, to be the bad cop so you can look like the good cop and then create the level of trust so they can open up. So I suspect that it will take some time, right, because there's a lot of attention and he, the suspect will probably be measuring every single word. So you've got to get people to really feel comfortable in engaging with you. And the reality is that as, at least in my work, right, it's not to decide someone is guilty, innocent, any of that. I'm really just trying to get to get to know the person. And that's what I would really emphasize to try to get the person to cooperate with me. And I think that most people who work in this field get there, you know, because we are so used to people being extremely guarded in the beginning. Okay. Uh... This one, I heard earlier, he had a heroin problem within his teens. Apparently, he got clean, but could it, could this have affected who he became? And my wife is saying, Nellie B., you have a question. So I've missed it. So please put it back up if you wouldn't mind and forgive me. I'm trying to keep up over here. But do you think, well, I think you answered that earlier, uh, uh, Gary, because that obviously the drug use would you know, play into a lot of, um, oh, okay, here it is right here. My wife just put it up. That the drug use would play into, obviously, some of his uh, psychosis or potential psychosis if uh, depends on the type of uh, problems going on there. But uh, it's a, it, you're going to have to go back and watch the replay of how he answered that because I, I want to get to this one too. Uh, I believe he may not see himself as a godlike or better than most more or less than he needs to be somebody or at least or somebody at last after my rejections in life thought so he's trying to i don't quite understand that well, what do you think i i think this question is getting to the heart of a point that we've raised in the previous um interview where for some offenders, there seems to be a vacillating between feelings of invisibility and feelings of complete power, domination, and control. And the difference between individuals like that and the ordinary person out in the world is that a person like this, it isn't enough to finally become somebody. You have to become somebody that also gets even 
that levels the playing field, that makes other people feel the way you did when you were down in the dirt, so that there's a vengeful quality to people like that. And that's what gives people like that a sense of playing God a little bit, that they're pulling the strings and, and so forth. And um, but but I think, you know, there definitely is a, a whiff of somebody in this crime, whether it was this offender or not, um, who had a probably longstanding grudge against people who rejected him. Now, th in this particular offender, it happens to be that there are a whole lot of evidence that's coming out that this is somebody who had every reason in the world to be pissed off because he was kind of picked on by women, rejected by them. And there's all kinds of stories. Who knows if they're true, but they're all coming out in the newspapers where they're interviewing people who've interacted with him. And you get stories like, you know, he went to a brewery and would make really misogynistic remarks to the women who worked there and they found him super creepy, right? Or that, you know, uh, other students just kind of felt that he sometimes thought that he knew better than the female instructor and would talk over her and, and not allow her to complete a thought. Uh, things like that, that sort of have that little, that 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 quality of a pervasive grudge, a, a pervasive uh, a need to level the playing field all the time. And, um, you know, so that, that I think it starts getting to the things like Anne was talking about, where you start thinking, what were the seeds of this? What were, when did this really start? Why did this person walk around with this chip on their shoulder for so long? And, and why did it take the particular form that it did? And why women? You know, there was a male victim here, but you really get the sense that the women were the, the, the central targets. Yeah. Was uh, he in the and, way? Um, and yeah. What, what did you say, Chris? That was he in the way? I mean, not anticipated. It's possible. It's po or perhaps there was envy of that guy's success with women. Uh, but, but I think that, that this is somebody who, who really ultimately felt horribly rejected and invisible and walked around furious for a long time and everything he tried to gain mastery over the environment. It just led to him being isolated, even the thing he was best at, which was this criminology stuff. And the, I mean, even there, it sounds like he was getting kind of isolated and, and considered by the other students to be kind of odd and too full of himself. Uh, so that I just think you, you have to picture a person that no matter what he tries, he just kind of can't get the social piece. And um, I think that if this offender is the the, the suspect, the tragedy of this is that this is a person who I think if he hadn't been kind of picked on and made to feel a certain way, had a character structure that could have lent itself to becoming a, a pro-social person who helped stop other people in, in crime or perhaps could have done something like joining law enforcement or the military or being a really good security guard or something where you take the traits that you have and you use them in a way to help other human beings because human beings have been good to you. But if you have those traits and human beings have been horrible to you, you can imagine using them in an antisocial way. Uh, and um, so I think you had somebody kind of towing the line, like, do I want to work on that side of the fence or the other? And then ultimately uses, you know, potentially uses what he learned. Um, to you know, one, of, one of the thoughts that I had from an investigative thought process is, you know, when he, and this deals with the two survivors, the fact that, you know, he, he exhausted a lot of energy with, you know, taking four people out. And especially 
uh, it's reported that two of the victims had defense wounds, and we don't know what those are, right? But I think in all of our experience, it would indicate there was some resistance taking place, which means he has to increase his control and power. I'm wondering if he just ran out of energy and or if he was thinking, I don't want to go through that again. And that's why the two on the bottom, if he was coming downstairs and hypothetically, if he'd gone out the front and not back out through the, you know, his point of entry. Uh, I wonder, and I was thinking about this the other night, I just wonder you know, and I don't know if those other two girls know just how lucky they are uh, to be here uh, today. Because if that if this gentleman went in there with the intent, you know, to kill everybody in that house, and Ethan, the male, who my understanding based on his family's description of him, you know, was a heck of a fighter. And so was Santa, the other, uh, one of the other victims. And if they did give him, you know, a half beating, um, and I've seen that before, as we all have, you know, I had a, a Marine victim who was stabbed, you know, over a hundred times, uh, but he stabbed the suspect too, because during the fight, he got, got the knife. Uh, but he just, you know, the, the suspect over, overcame him. And I'm just wondering if he wasn't running out of energy because he, the unanticipated fourth person, i.e. the male, Ethan, gave him a little bit extra fight. And then he you know, is realizing, okay, I got to get out of here. And he goes downstairs and decides, you know what, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to open that door just in case. Okay. Because he opened the other one and boom, he gets a fight. And I know that's just pure thought process here, but it, uh, but it's going to be interesting to hear him. Uh, and one of the I had somebody ask, what would I ask him? And that would be my question: Why did you allow the two to survive? What were you thinking? And it's not, and I know it's not as elegant as. Uh, the panel here. These these are brilliant, brilliant people. And I've had you guys for two hours and 15 minutes already. And I still have 16 questions and they keep coming. And you still have 10,600 people in the arena. You tell me. Gary, are you? Chris, Chris can, I, can, can I just mention something? Chris, Chris uh, there, I'm reading the comments that are coming. Please. And it looks like a point we have to make of clarification is that there's no sense of blaming the women who rejected this guy for causing what happened to him because of course they did have a right to say no to him it's the way he reacted to it but i do want to emphasize that you know based on some of the comments people i think astutely picked up that one could read that to be implying that we might suggest that you know if they had only been nicer to him you know perhaps he could mm -hmm. and i think it is very important to to emphasize that that is not what any of us would mean um but but that it has more to do with the way that he interpreted in a kind of a pet paranoid or misogynistic way normal rejection that a person would have every right in the world to make but, but i think it's a really important point because i 
quite a few people have been raising it. Sure. Yeah, no, and, and I think the girls probably whipped him too. Uh, I really do. I, I, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of women who are a lot stronger than a lot of men and, you know, I've been on the street with them and I've watched women just choke guys out and just go, well, that, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So yes, thank you for clarifying that doc. I really appreciate that. Really appreciate that. Uh, good point. So let's get another couple of questions in here. Um, I got that one. Love this panel. And Anne, you you keep getting these amazing compliments. Boy, oh boy. I love these names. So Polar Bear, Bipolar Bear. <laughs> Fantastic. And Victor, I I can't leave you out. If you are if apparently if you are interviewing witchy woman, uh he she'd tell you everything, everything you need to know. Oh, well, <laughs> I guess it's better that she doesn't commit a crime then. <laughs> That's hysterical. Uh, so this one, do you think he could have gone to a different school because planning on doing this and didn't want to do it closer to home? I think it's kind of an open-ended mm. thought there. Dr. Burgess? I think he had the thought before he went out there. And in uh, and, and, uh, uh, planning a crime, I just meant that if, if this is the suspect and planning crime, I think that once he gets there, something, uh, and I think something has come out from one of the social medias about one of the uh, one of the victim's sister knowing somebody or something. I think that will come out, um, but I, I don't think he he planned to go out there, and I don't believe he targeted these four young people when he's back in Pennsylvania. Interesting. So BTK's daughter yeah. just in an interview with news nation uh, did not realize uh, that. I think this is more of a comment from Vicki did not oh. realize BTK study the same be uh, Ted Bundy study, criminal law, learning so much. Thank you so much, uh, Vicki. That's is a, is a great, yeah. uh, I'm going to go look at that interview. Uh, to see what she said. Uh, I, I think we've answered this one, but do you think this is his first killing? I think it is, but you, you guys know more than I'll ever know. Yeah, I, I, I agree that so far what it's known from the crime scene is not someone who has mastered, right? Their craft, I guess, for lack of a better term. So whether if it's not the first, it's very early on. That would be my my thought. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, let's see here. In cold blood obsession, if he had an accomplice, maybe be closer to uh, and Perry Smith, almost same date, November 59, four victims. I don't, I'm not familiar with this case. Gary, you know that case? Yeah, they're referencing the case that Truman Capote wrote about uh, oh, in, in in Cold Blood uh, with the you know with the Perry and Dick, uh, and um, you know where there was a home invasion and a mass murder with criminal aims. You know that kind of went got really ugly. Um, when we looked at in the mass murder database we did at Columbia, we there we found there are some mass murderers that have an accomplice. But usually it involves a 
very psychopathic kind of leader figure and then like a weaker willed uh ally that kind of works with the individual but most mass murders that involve multiple offenders uh, have to do with criminal aims like gang activity or um organized crime murders or things like this very unusual for a personal cause kind of mass murder to involve more than one person there are, you could count on just a few hands uh and i think you can sort of do the, the deduction backwards that if we think this is a personal cause kind of a thing chances are there probably wasn't an ally and in fact what i would go so far as to say is that if this person could create that kind of an alliance with another human being i'm not so sure they'd be motivated to do something like this i think the whole point is that they can't make a connection with another human being could you imagine that kind of a control freak needing to to trust another person with half of the information or or working alongside them or you know it'd be like sharing being god I just don't think it works that way. So this is a, a monotheist in his sense of his own godliness. Uh, so, so, so I, I, I just don't think so. I think everything. I would be greatly shocked if it turned out. You never know, but I, I, I would, I would strongly uh, advise against making that kind of assumption. And speaking of books, there are the doctors' links are in the uh, descriptions yeah. below. Make sure. You go to Amazon or wherever you find their books and buy their books, please. Uh, it helps support not only them, but it helps support their research. And uh, it also, um, they're amazing reads. So you'll you'll learn a ton of information. And of course, uh, Anne, who has the most amazing smile, she wore her Christmas uh, sweater, you know, her, her Christmas sweater the other day. And uh, but you're getting a thousand compliments tonight. So in your opinions, uh, choosing victims in different state, uh, be a way of helping to avoid capture. Uh, it feels very calculated decision in his plan. Oh, I'd agree. I'd agree. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is an excellent discussion. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I, wait a minute. Wait, Gary? You <laughs> well, we agree. I, at least I don't have to feel left out now. We agree. Now we, wait, we, we, we have to wait for someone to give you a compliment, uh, Chris. I'm oh, I'm good. I'm good. Any you second are, now. You're killing it over here. Bum bum. That's our inside joke. Okay, uh, Victor, you were going to say. Well, regarding the. the the out-of-state part, to me, the important piece that, that would indicate, sure, there's the police concern, right, uh, in terms of investigation, but also being very practical. Uh, that is what I will be thinking. Is this person someone who is very methodical and practical and thinking about the before, the during, and the after? And not to be this dead horse and turn into glue, but the survey that was out was literally asking about the before, the during, and the after. Interesting. Here's more of a comment. Saving the dog aligns with being a vegan plus dogs, innocent plus God behavior, uh, deciding who lives and dies based on a warped reasoning. Interesting. That's a good, that's an interesting thought. Love it. Uh, very interesting. And uh, Gary, they're coming in, buddy. Here, here they go. You're the man. It's good. You know, I, I, and I agree with the, 
all of these compliments coming in, I just, you know, I am just blown away. The other day, if you have not seen the segments we cut out uh, for Dr. Burgess and Dr. Bricado, and now we have Victor, so we'll cut his segments out too. Uh, but uh, man, they were right on target. It was, it was, uh, it was scary to be honest with you, you know, right. It was scary, but it was so, it, it just, it just goes to solidify the validity of the science uh, where, and now the technology that exists where you can put it into the environment and everybody can see it. And then all of a sudden it happens and everybody goes, Whoa, what just happened? And there's some always, there's going to be nuances, just like, you know, that's human, right? Human behavior, right? There's going to be, you know, left turns, right time, right turns. But quite frankly, they got you to the destination is, I guess, my point uh, on the evaluation and the, and the, you know, what you thought the personality types, what personality type would be. Uh, and you, and you have nailed it uh, to, to the wall here. Do I think there's going to be loopholes? Uh, yeah, I think uh, Dr. Burgess mentioned that earlier. He's going to play it. Uh, yeah. The one thing that he's, he's un I don't know if he's anticipating it, but Idaho does not have uh, a insanity defense. Oh. So he underplayed that card. Uh, they'll just throw him, you know, into a facility for, you know, getting him correct. And then they'll put him back in the system. And we just saw that happen with Lori Vallow uh, in that case up here in Idaho. Uh, so that is a really good point. Um, let's see here. I got a couple more. Wow. They keep coming. Uh, okay. Would BTK have been caught earlier with genealogy? That's a good one. Yeah. Well, well, BTK left semen uh, at the site of hanging the, the I believe, 15, uh, 13 or 15. The, the young girl who was killed as part of the family murder, he hanged her in the basement uh, from a pipe. There was semen left there. Uh, and I think that, you know, if this had happened today, um, you know, that might have been a case that got solved a lot quicker. Uh, wouldn't you say, Anne? Uh, yeah. Yes. Well, they got the uh, DNA from the daughter. Yeah, uh, she, she talks about it. It's really interesting. Um, without her permission, she said she just wished that they had asked her permission. They got it from a, an exam that she had at school. And uh, she said she would have given it to them, but then she realized that they couldn't have asked her. But at any rate, I think that was important on the uh, on the DNA, that it was uh, familial or, yeah, familial. Um, let's see here. Possibly taking pieces and parts from other serial murders like the do's and don'ts. Any similarities in your opinions? Kind of like wanting to be one that got away. His education choices planned, in my opinion, thanks. So basically what I think Vet Girl's asking, right? Is he picking and choosing based on his study from these other personalities in the serial killer environments? Oh, I think he's well read on the serial killers. He might have even read our books. How do we know? Right, Gary? He might have read your book. Um, 
they do. I remember doing samples, uh, would write to me for all of our articles that get published. So um, I wouldn't, that would be one way he would know about some of these things. Here's an interesting question. When you guys have interviewed these serials, what questions do they ask you? <laughs> well, I can tell you that the question everybody asks me, and it's not a very great answer, but they always want to know where I'm from. And <laughs> in some instances, there has that question is for very specific personal reasons that they want to know, because I have dealt with people who have committed very targeted, racially driven, xenophobic type of crimes. And that is something that they want to see how much of the target am I, so that in psychology, psychiatry will call that transference that they put, put on to me. So that is usually the first thing that people want to know. Dr. Gary? I think there's a very great interest in being interesting, you know, wanting to be admired. Uh, you know, what are you going to do with this? Are you going to write a book about me? Are you going to? And I have to say, one of the great hesitations I have in discussing the Idaho case so much is I can't help but feel that every one of us is just handing this individual mountains and mountains of attention uh, as if this is the most fascinating case, you know, and the, when in fact, um, you know, there have been thousands of mass murders and, you know, I, and I find myself wondering, why are we so interested in this guy? It's almost as if the the ego is, you know, it's a the need is that powerful that it ma it manipulates all of us and it's just chatting away about him all day long. He's just endlessly interested, and that's why it gets right to that question: What will he do if one day, you know, he's behind bars and you know if this is the guy who did it and they now have him in in custody? That will he talk? I, I think you can't wait. I think that first there'll be a attempt to defend to defend himself, but then the the deliciousness of being that interesting and and being a study of one and who's going to write the book about me and i don't you want to know what was really going through my mind when i spared those people and don't you really want to know what what so i just can't help but feel that um a little bit of a regret that <laughs> i'm talking so much about him I, I don't know if you guys also have that feeling but i just think mm. we're making him feel a lot more interesting than he is the whole point is he's not that interesting that's what that's at the heart of this entire case. He's not that interesting, but somehow here we are. It, that's fascinating, fascinating insight. So, Dr. Burgess, what, what would he ask you? Well, I usually start off an interview by asking the person what, what they want to know, uh, what we're going to do, kind of thing. And I don't get many questions. They kind of just let me. <laughs> they ask the questions. So I, I'm just sitting here trying to think what th that they ask. I know, I'm and they would, ask for your, they would ask for your autograph. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. Uh, so in his class, when they're talking about the crime, he went silent. What do you think? What do you think he was thinking about? He didn't want to give himself away, I'm sure. He didn't want to appear too interested. 
But it sounds like that wasn't his, uh, was that his usual behavior? Was he more talkative? I mean, that's what we want to know is what would he talk about in class? Mm -hmm. What would he write about? I want to know what kinds of papers he wrote. Oh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So this question is any recommendations on books on Israel keys is, and he's in your, is he in your database? He's uh, oh, well, Israel Keys was a, a serial killer. And uh, of course, the the book on Israel Keys was American Predator, uh, an excellent book that came out just a couple of years ago, which I think really, um, I hate to say, elevated Israel Keys to something of a household name and among people who are interested in true crime. Uh, prior to that book, he was a very obscure individual partly because of the secret of the nature of that case uh and um but but i think that would be the book to read uh that's written I, i'm writing a little bit about it myself as we speak um uh because i'm very interested in offenses that involve photography uh and then and photography figured into that case not only in one of the most awful aspects of it but in how he was caught right that sort of the undoing of of the person's ego by the very thing that they're they're using to commit their heinous offenses fascinates me uh but um but but that would be the book i'd read on him interesting okay interesting. so i've got two more and then um i'm gonna the of course i give the panel the last word so i don't know who wants to give the last word this evening uh, so I'll let uh, the three doctors uh, work that out. And then, um, well, I mean, Victor's a real cutie. Gary's, uh, you know, got amazing eyes, uh, brilliant. Anne's just beautiful. She's got uh, like 10,000, you know, uh, boyfriends over here now. Victor, you too. I mean, you've got all kinds of, you know, followers and uh, up here. Uh, I can tell you this, the, the consensus of the group, uh, in the chats anyway, is you each need a podcast. Uh, I, I concur with that. That would be fascinating. Uh, and I hope I'm your first guest if you do have one. Not that I would add any value to it. <laughs> you just, you know, I, I, we're in an airstream here and we lower property values like Griswold, like Cousin Eddie, everywhere we go around the country. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic when we pull into a neighborhood. You know, they're like, who's that guy? <laughs> you know, it's a real beauty, Clark. Uh, but that said, all right. So perhaps Ethan put up a fight. The suspect was exhausted. Yep. I totally agree. That is a possibility, Karma. Thank you so much. And then been following this from the start. I live 90 minutes from the Poconos. When I heard where he was caught, I got chills down my spine. It went from being so far away to being right in my own backyard. And maybe, Dr. Picotta, that's kind of leans towards the interest in this, right? I mean, crime has been such a social magnet for so many people, myself included, obviously, uh, that now that I think social media is in the... Uh, world today that we're losing a little bit more of social civility to to victor's point earlier uh, and meaning when you talk to these 
folks. And then I hope, I hope tonight, you know, we're, what I'm going to say, and then I'm going to turn it over to the panel. And I'm actually going to let each one of you say something. And then when we're done, Victor, we have a, we have a uh, tradition here. At the conclusion of each of your comments, we go to Hawaii. Uh, I always like to end on a real positive note with the Aloha spirit. Uh, because we do get, you know, serious. Uh, but, you know, I just think with civility, we're losing that capability as a society. And as, a, you know, the, the Internet has compressed the world to such a place that, you know, hopefully we, we're not putting these people on a pedestal like, you know, Gary talks about. Um, I know that each of us here don't do that. This is strictly, you know, for educational purposes, as well as helping maybe that one, that one person not become victimized uh, in the future by learning something about how these animals think. And when I say animals, not that they're, I'm, I'm talking about the human condition, right? I'm not calling them animals because I think we can all agree we've sat in front of these individuals and they're just human beings. And maybe there's a malfunction going on chemically. Maybe there's a brain malfunction going on. They do the, some of the most horrendous things, but they are human beings. And, and at some point, you know, they may get to a place where they reflect. But somebody that does something this brutal and this crazy i am grateful for each one of you uh, and your years of study of the human mind that does this and i want to thank you each for always you know being polite uh, to me as well as i'm just grateful for our friendships and and i hope you'll get your own podcast <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm teasing, of course, but I think that would be a fantastic, fantastic thing. And Victor, and um, so that said, I'm going to step out and give you each um, the last word, and then we are going to jump into Hawaii. Will you come back again? Sure. Of course. Okay. I'm going to pull out and then uh, you're going to go to Hawaii. So who would, uh, ladies first, okay. uh, Dr. Burgess, and my yeah. mother would never forgive me. So you're <laughs> Okay. Now, no, happy to uh, give a few words. I, um, I always think of the families that are left uh, from these four uh, students. They were, uh, there's so much that has been said about it and I have appreciated the way that the media has covered it, but I want to give a shout out. I don't know if it's true or not. I'd give a shout out to the police who, as I understand it at 3 AM in the morning went in and got this suspect and woke him up. I hope and frightened him. Cause you can imagine what it was like for those four to be woken up in the middle of the night. It, it, it's, I think I heard one of the fathers say that, once they had identified a suspect that he had his first night that he really could sleep. So, you know what the, um, we can try to understand what the families are going through. So let's never forget them in our haste to try to understand 
uh, this particular suspect. I can go next if that's okay. <laughs> uh, first, thank you for having me. This was a great experience. I really appreciate the discussion with Anne, Gary, uh, wonderful colleagues that we partner in many projects. And the one piece that we often talk about and we hear, right, when we hear something that is this grotesque or this terrible, there's always the first thought that this person must be sick in the head. And sometimes when you start peeling the, the layers away, you start realizing that it's not so much about the chemical deficiency. It's not so much about the raising because a lot of people have mental illness. A lot of people have been traumatized as children and that does not make them violent offenders. You know, So we have to be very careful about looking at risk factors that could be associated with someone who commits violence, but not necessarily equate those things to these very scary crimes, right? Because we don't want to, let's say, have someone who has a diagnosis. We have mentioned the schizoid personality disorder a few times today, right? You cannot be associating that with this person. We should be afraid of them. We should isolate them. We should arrest them because those two things don't correlate necessarily. So I would just encourage everybody to certainly explore what are the psychological mechanisms, potential diagnosis that may be associated or not with this type of behavior, but realize that there, these are the exceptions, right? These cases, that this is not the standard person who will do something like this. Um, I, I think those are wonderful closing points. The emphasis on the victims, the applauding of law enforcement and how this was handled and the uh, emphasis on the it's important not to stigmatize people suffering from mental illness because in fact they're far more likely to be victims of violent crime than to actually perpetrate it there are a lot of myths uh, surrounding that particularly when it comes to mass murder and especially of the mass shooting type um, but uh, I, I, I would also add that um, one of the interesting things about this offense is how decidedly modern it is the that the motivations that appear to be at play here are are, are motives that are more common in crimes that happen let's say in the post 1960s period and are also decidedly western especially american in flavor and i think it's important to think about the complex interplay of what's going on in our culture why it is that that these crimes are 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 becoming more common and more awful why the average person seems just a little bit more audacious and disinhibited and kind of self-centered and and um and why it is that um you know how it is that technology interplays with that um to kind of make for a, a pretty catastrophic soup uh, a perfect storm if you will so that i think it's interesting to reflect on um what does this crime say about where we are at as a culture the emphasis on the importance of being attractive uh, the importance of being special the importance of uh, putting oneself before other people even you know at the cost of taking innocent lives uh the you know etc so that that it's really important to think about what's up with us what's going on with our culture right now uh, that that I think is also an important takeaway. Um, but but I I love the emphasis on the victims and and not blaming the mentally ill. I think we couldn't end on a more perfect note.
Summer breeze 